Sorry we haven't talked more tonight about how we're going to beat Donald Trump. I have an idea about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not going to be beaten just by insider politics talk. He's not going to be beaten just by somebody who has plans. He's going to be beaten by somebody who has an idea what this man has done. This man has reached into the psyche of the American people and he has harnessed fear for political purposes. So Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field and serve love you. the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome back to Weird Signal. I'm Sean and I'm here with Lucy. Hello. Uh, it's Lent, so I'm sober and Lucy's sick. So <laughs> this is going to be an interesting episode. Yeah. Um, also, we're recording in the middle of a storm, and I mean, it's a, it's a, the, the 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 kind of null point. It's calm right now. The eye of the storm, maybe, maybe not. Does this Hopefully one have a name? Not. I forget. Uh, who cares? Uh, anyway, so if you hear a sudden hissing noise, that's just the hail once again returning. Yes. But hopefully that won't happen. Hopefully maybe our voices will. will be louder and sharper, and just generally more interesting to listen to than the gentle rattling of my thin metal roof. So, the important thing is that we are back. We have returned like the spectre. And mm. this is an opportunity for us to reflect on where we are in this cursed year of our Lord, 2020. Some 28 years after history was meant to have ended, and yet history does have a habit of returning. Yeah, basically, it's like, it's new decade, new season, new you, new year. New us. New us. And, you know, as, as a kind of um, real kind of time with that, you know, just put a fucking pin in it, I think what we need to do at this point is return to first principles and also just generally give a summary of where we've kind of come up to at the moment. And by first principles, I mean hauntology, that thing that's in the introduction, that's in the sting. Welcome to the podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. Which I forgot to say just now. But you just said it there, so yes. we're fine. So, yeah, not an episode has gone by where we haven't said that. <laughs> Wait, did I double negative that? I don't know. But basically, um, basically, yeah, that thing, hauntology, that thing that was supposed to be the main thing that the podcast was about, but we did it as the focus of the first episode and then made a couple of passing references and then... Ghost really... like it has always been in the background, yeah, but it's time... We talked mostly just about fascism and body horror and <laughs> sex stuff and the well, occult, we are the which is all... We're the podcast of the weird and the eerie after all, and you know, we have been focusing on the weird, but so we're going to bring in some of that eerie goodness we know that you love. We're going to name the spirit. We are going to actually... Speak to the spirit as Spe scholars. So, Lucy, and all the inherent problems that that yeah. So basically, what is, what is hauntology? I mean, Remind us. Well, I mean, to remind you, I mean, just going back to that, um, Francis. The, uh, the history ended, but communism had a few has a particular future because well, I'm going to speak to this more in a little bit because um, it, there's a big bit at the end of this podcast where we're going to talk very heavily about Derrida. So, a little warning up front, but basically. 
Um, well, I don't know, it's, I think more importantly is the reason we're talking about ontology, which is the idea of uh, futures existing in a kind of spectral sense. Um, and so, so things, so lost futures or not so much that, but just, oh, I mean that as well, but um, the, the, the study of ontology is really the study of the impact the past has on the present as a haunting influence. And we as a podcast have always, we've always pitched ourselves right from the very outset as a, um, as a podcast that makes a very definite, it is making a very definite effort in its work to position itself within a moment. And the moment that we were born out of was, uh, the kind of the post 16, the post 2016 chaos or kind of as it was perceived chaos. I mean, chaos isn't necessarily always a negative thing. It was, we, we saw a lot happen in the last couple of years. We chaos saw, cer- but still certainly chaos with destabilization of, of uh, the political consensus. Yeah. The dom- loss of the, um, the loss of the, what was described as the neoliberal consensus, which seemed to be like the natural kind of the right biological order of things in the 1990s that was embraced by so many people throughout the political spectrum and caused us all to forget so much. Gentle social liberalism working alongside moderate market liberalism, mm. uh, th- as perceived as being the final natural state of the social order from this point onwards, it being a matter of making minor calibrations here and there, but the fundamental principles having been set. And this, of course, being something that was a a lie, uh, a falsehood, a deception, Mm. which was never really, which has, which was no more... This is I mean, neoliberalism still, yeah. being no more the the uh, divinely ordained social order as the right of kings in the previ- in, in the in previous epochs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the the kind of the neoliberal order as the the main voice of the quote unquote left, or indeed the dominant voice of the quote unquote left, is still out there failing its best life. <laughs> um, we nearly had socialism. Do you remember, like the last episode, we were like talking about leading up to a general election, which went really fucking well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which, you know, we did... Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, But, you know, but, you know, even before that, we were like, this is... We talk about, like, post-2016 world, but, like, really, we're just seeing... We're seeing a lot of things for what they are that have been building up since, like, the early 1980s. Bit of a hat tip there to what we're going to be talking about. But, or indeed, late 1980s, but... uh, the, the 1980s. Um, but, yeah, so what are we talking about? Because, you know, as well as being a... a relatively political podcast we are also a cultural co- podcast and um we're thinking a lot about kind of what is happening in culture at the moment because speculative fiction is having a real i mean speculative fiction has always been about but it's having a, a revival of popularity a kind of kind of like popular understanding of its capacity for asking interesting questions and stuff. We're seeing, and, yes, yeah. we're seeing this manifest in uh, numerous different ways. There's the, ob- there's, there's the obvious one about sort of like the uh, resurgent success of um, your big budget sci-fi movies like Star Wars, which uh, Mark Fisher famously uh, condemned as empty spectacle, undermining the real genuine sort of um, subversive possibilities well, of science fiction. He was I'm writing not- in like 2005 and like probably coming out of like... Uh, no, I think- I- anyone would be better coming out of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you can uh revenge of the Sith. yeah i watched that again recently and it is 
bad. Mm. It's, it's bad. Bad no, film. Yeah. Bad but, film. I know it was a controversial uh, take. Well, actually, apparently, it has uh-huh. become a controversial take to yeah. suggest the prequels were actually shit as we all thought they were. Yeah. They I mean, like, you know, I think you'll find on the internet a lot of people have the higher ground there. You're really working from <laughs> a limited amount of information. It's over. Um, um, but as well as that, we have, of course, seen, uh, and this has been something very uh, that uh, we've both enjoyed immensely, sort of like The Return. Horror got good again. Yeah, I mean, like... And it is it, horror. It's not yeah. post-horror. It's horror. And, 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 yeah, I mean, it kind of, like... Even though there is, like, some difficulty... You know, uh, there are very legitimate objections to be raised to the definition of post-horror, but the fact that it's... Uh, that horror has gotten good enough that, uh, f- you know, film critics have felt the need to invent a whole new term for the genre... Um, <laughs> Is you know, and the fact that film critics are talking about it at all and asking these questions and things is is very good. But just thinking, because that's a that's a point I actually wanted to bring up a minute ago. Um, is the idea that we're looking at some very good horror at the moment, um, and it's kind of very much. I think there is a very genuine renaissance that could be said to have taken place over the last decade. Um, following on from a kind of not a great vintage of the. I mean, there were some certain gems in the two thousands. But it was kind of, it was when horror cinema got analytical in a way that was a bit too overt and really a bit too 90s, one might say, you know, when, when kind of like everyone thought Scream was really, really clever, um, and which it, kind of, which it was, no fucking shade to them. But, um, but basically what we're seeing here and what's very interesting is a, um, a generation of filmmakers, because com- we, we haven't covered that much actual contemporary horror, although it's been a very much a background presence and we have talked about it a fair bit. We haven't covered it as a central focus, but I think it's it's relevant to bring up um, because it's a generation of filmmakers working who kind of were either born in or c- culturally developed through the period that was understood as the end of history, which is the, um, which, you know, if you cast your mind back to um, the first episode, or indeed um, the Mark Fisher article that, or the Mark Fisher blog that summed up a lot of these ideas about ontology, which is the uh, the slow cancellation of the future. Um, so that was kind of the post, uh, it, the era immediately following the fall of the Soviet Union, when when the thing we are talking about as kind of the, the hegemony of uh, neoliberalism really set in, and of course, you know, the the idea of an end of history, an end to history, is um, kind of is an absurdity because you know it just doesn't end and ideology doesn't end uh in the in the way that um some people some neo you know only neoliberals think that his that ideology doesn't exist because they don't want to think that they're an ideology but they absolutely are but i'm i'm i'm, I'm drifting but basically um we're looking you know, generation filmmakers grew up in that era and now that's the culture that we're living in. That's the cultural moment, and that underpins a lot of that. But a large part of that cultural moment is based in something I'm actually going to talk about in a little bit in kind of nostalgia, which, um, but a kind of a very particular type of nostalgia that warrants a certain degree of analysis, uh, which we're going to be doing kind of over the course of the episode, basically, in, in relation to the film we're going to be discussing tonight. May I raise May. a uh, tangential point? Do it, yeah. Thank you. Uh, just on the subject of, of uh, the current uh, crop of uh, very good horror movies and how, if we view these as filmmakers who have, uh, who developed uh, aesthetically and artistically through the end of history and are now developing films post the end of history, mm-hmm. or 
within history again because of course history has lurched back into well it hasn't lurched back into life it always was going yeah. on it's just reminded us it's there I just curiously uh, have you, uh, just thought about um, hereditary <clears throat> And if you haven't seen Hereditary, I'm going to give away the ending here. Oh, it's been out for it's been out for a few years now. Skip ahead like no. maybe a minute or so. Uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, because the because uh, I mean, the twists are good. Yeah, so one of the potential rabbit holes that we you we are led down when we're watching Hereditary is that this is uh, a woman's descent into uh, madness inspired by her own psychoses and especially around uh, the death of her daughter. But then, uh, at the end of the film, the rug is torn, it is pulled from out under our feet entirely. And suddenly, no, it's fucking witches. It yeah. is, is, is fucking devil worshipping witches, uh, been performing a, uh, a ritual in order to summon the uh, demon Paimon and implant him in the body of the uh, rejected, essentially, teenage fail son basically um the, the pothead stone the uh, teenage fail son he's not old enough to be a fail son <laughs> the fail son is usually at kind of ceo age uh, maybe 27 <laughs> that's that's the that's the real kind of like watershed moment from like kind of unpromising son into full-blown fail son but the reason i bring this up is Precisely because we are being so, we're not a drug shaming podcast. Just <laughs> we are being in led. The down, we are being led down this kind of garden path that that's what this film is, and then suddenly we have this kind of like um, explosion from a completely uh, an, a, an area of culture which one would safely have assumed uh, doesn't exist anymore. And I think isn't that kind of in many ways, the actual sort of experience that we're all living through now, you know, sort of the assumption that everything's settled. We figured it all out. All we're doing, again, all we're doing is we are calibrating things here and there. A little bit of trans rights over here, a little bit of immigration over here, but not too much uh, because fascism, racism is still real. But anyway, but then out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, out of this repressed underground comes exploding in uh, a completely new avenue or an old uh, um, current of the real, displacing everything. And this can be either a good thing, uh, it, you know, sort of like um, the rediscovery of the realities of, of, of class struggle or, or so, or it can be horrifying and dark. It can be the sudden resurgence, you know, in fact, we are arguably living through now the resurgence of uh, far-right populism, mm -hmm. the sudden discovery that actually, no, the myth of nation, the myth of race. The myth of blah. Uh, the myth of blah. Uh, these are all things that are actually... And Clinton. That These are things that can, can well, ghost-like return. And mm -hmm. not all ghosts are benign. No. Uh, some, sometimes it's good. For, sometimes it's the friendly ghost of Karl Marx. Other times <laughs> it's the ghosts of fucking... Giovanni Gentili and uh, Mussolini yeah. and Corsa. Old, well, old, old H. Old H himself. Yeah. Um, and like, I think that's that's actually a crucial point to make because it's basically, I think that point, there's kind of like these painful rediscoveries, but also the the more general kind of lingering cultural malaise. Well, no, it's not a malaise. It's um, the kind of cultural nostalgia mode to borrow a uh, phrase from Je Jame Frederick Jameson which I'm going to articulate a little bit more later but both of these speak to something a, a concept that Derrida went into in some great detail which was the notion of the injunction uh, which is 
the the sense that um, there is there is no kind of like that none of this sense of I guess what one might describe as is it am I right in thinking it's the, the idea of kind of we're op operating on a sense of like Hegelian linear time against which there is a certain disruption that compresses and compounds space and time which technology has played a significant part in um is that i mean like that this was a tradition marx was working from which is why it's kind of one that's way down to us um, i mean in terms of the uh the you know how marx found you know yeah. finds hegel in his head and puts him on his feet and that's sort all of like marx like marx uh, holding that it is um, well, he, but Marx wasn't a, a, an economic determinist. He wasn't a technological determinist. He wasn't saying that actually the 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 only driving force in uh, culture and ideology in the broad sense, you know, the, the way a society conceives of itself is through its ecological, its ecological, uh, econ sorry, not ecological, economic and technological basis. Uh, but all the same understanding that. Um, that is one of the driving. That is one of the things that does actually push, move, pushes things onwards. Mm. It does actually bring about radical alterations in the rest of the social yeah. superstructure. Yeah. It's not the it's not the decisive force. There is a dialect. There's a dialectic movement between culture and economy, so mm. to speak. Um, but understand well, perhaps just like understanding sort of like what the nature of that dynamic is that actually you know, sort of like technological innovation and scientific innovation no that is a social drive we can maybe so talk about this terms. maybe we can talk it about does all more in, yeah and that's that's something actually we need to kind of definitely articulate up front there's something in, um, well in the derrida section when we come to talk about the the bit when we come to talk about derrida later on it'll be necessary to make that clarification so basically what we're leading into is a sense of injunction that, as as uh, as the operator says, time is out of joint, um, and so is space, and that's why tonight we're going to be talking about Donnie Darko. Darko is the troubled teenage son of a middle-class family in your typical small-town America in the late 1980s. He has uh, mental health issues. He um, sees a, uh, a therapist. We find out towards the end of the film that she considers him to be a paranoid schizophrenic. And his mental health issues sort of like primarily manifest in these daylight hallucinations he has of a six-foot bunny man named Frank. And while Donnie is sleepwalking one night, uh, Frank warns him uh, that the apocalypse, the end of the world, is coming. And he gives him an exact time, only a few weeks away, like down to the second of when the world is going to end. Halloween. While he's... It's, it's not, it is Halloween. Yeah, it's Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's when the world uh, when the world's end when the world ends. Yes, mm. while he's out sleepwalking that night, uh, he is outside his house, wandering around the streets, and the engine of a jet plane smashes into his bedroom. And over the over the next months, Donny kind of he goes through like a lot of the typical sort of like teenage rites of passage of uh, standing up and. Uh, 
telling truth to power. He gets a girlfriend. He loses his virginity. All of all of that good stuff. Uh, but all the, but throughout all of this, he's still being. Uh, he's still seeing these hallucinations of Frank, and Frank is impelling him to perform these destructive actions and he can't resist doing so because he uh, as he puts it to his therapist he saved my life he's com i'm compelled uh to obey him and concurrent with this dolly becomes increasingly obsessed with the uh, possibility of time travel and he reads a book on the subject called the philosophy of time travel which he realizes was written by uh, the local recluse an old woman named uh, nicknamed grandma death Roberta Sparrow. Roberta Sparrow. Yeah. And on and on the night of Halloween, Donnie and his girlfriend go. Uh, his girlfriend Gretchen. They go to see uh, Grandma uh, Death to get sort of like guidance from her. And while they're doing this, they're attacked by the uh, the local high school bullies. And so, like in the kerfuffle that follows, uh, Donnie uh, Donnie's sister's boyfriend, a man called Frank, runs Gretchen over and kills her. And we see when he steps out of the car, my God, he's dressed in a bunny costume as well. <gasps> Distraught, <laughs> Donnie kills Frank and carries Gretchen's body to the site of the hills overlooking the town where he first had the hallucination or, or, or where he wakes up on the night of his sleepwalk when Frank delivers the message of the apocalypse to him. And meanwhile, uh, flying overhead is Donnie's mum and his younger sister on the way to a... Uh, is it is a dance competition, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, they actually fly out, I think, to Seattle for it. Yeah. And out of suddenly, some kind of vortex <laughs> opens up and it swallows the engine off of the plane, obviously sort of like plunging it uh, down towards the earth. And Donnie seemingly reverses time. He, re he goes back through the entire course of the film that we've seen and suddenly he's back in his bedroom the night the jet engine which we realize now came from the future came from a month in the future smashes into his room but instead of leaving laughing joyfully he simply rolls over in his sleep and the jet engine smashes in altering the course of uh, history and cancelling all of the events that we've seen Should we talk a bit about our personal relationship with this film? I think we should. I think one of the... I it, mean, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll Dolly... do the caveats in a sec. But yeah, I think we'll, I think it's best to start off with the question, which I've been like, whenever I've been justifying as I felt it necessary to do so to people um, why we're covering... Me. Including me. <laughs> including Sean took a bit of persuasion. Uh, there, there may have been like a Twitter poll a couple of months back, which may have tipped our hat a little bit there. But um, the key question I've been pitching is, is it, as many insist, a bad film? Or is it in fact a fucking great film that we're all just a bit uncomfortable with because we're embarrassed about the people we were at the time at which we saw the film. I think both are legitimate. I think a lot there's a lot of hate for this film, despite it being, you know, critically very successful and getting a lot of awards and, you know, and generally being regarded as stylistically, and I do want to talk about the stylistics in a bit, well, like, we need to talk about the stylistics, you know, even, even if it has nothing to do with the critical territory we want to talk about the fucking production of this film is incredible. It's a work of art. Um, 
But there are certain kind of like guilt themes that people, I think it's just, it deals with teenageness in a very, very involved sense, which also spoke to the kind of not just like uh, feelings of teenageness one may have been experiencing as a teenager, but also one's own kind of budding critical analysis of the world and one's own place within it, which is um, just like kind of the notes or the thoughts that are generated in the mind of, say, a 15-year-old Lucy tend to be a a bit of a spicy memory to kind of prod at. I first saw this film when I was 17 years old. I was at sixth form. And when I, I watched it on my own one night and I was so overwhelmed by it, I went to my room, I turned off the light, I lay on my bed and I listened to Unknown Pleasures in the Dark. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I, I, I was that kid and I'm still that kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, so this is exactly what you're saying. Like there's, a, there is a, there's an air of embarrassment around this film. In fact, like for a long time, this was a movie I kind of like told myself, it's a movie I'm never going to go back and watch again because it meant a lot to me when I was an idiot teenager and I kind of like don't want to be, reminded of being that age. I don't want to be reminded of uh, my naivety and my um, weird sincerity and and so on. But, but, the official weird signal position on Donnie Darko is it's quite good. (laughs) Official weird weird signal stance on cringe is that sometimes it's okay to be cringe. I I will ma- I, I I aggressively maintain that cringe is actually all right sometimes. Yeah. One needs cringe. One needs cringe. Sometimes but yeah, it's based to be cringe. Uh it's Oh, can I recommend you watch it again? Yes, yes I can. Yeah. Because you need to watch it again to get this podcast. Yeah. And getting is a very important issue with this, this film because like we've also got a couple of very significant caveats to lay down before we probably go into the analysis thereupon. Yes, so to explain what we mean here, I'm going... um, There's two cuts of this film. There's the theatrical cut and the director's cut. We are not talking about the director's cut. We are only mentioning the director's cut in reference to why you shouldn't watch the director's cut. And also some minor stylistic points, but go ahead. Yeah, because one of the wonderful things about this this film, and it's one of the things that is genuinely good about it, is there's a lot of layers of uh, ambiguity and uh, not misdirection, but just questions that aren't answered and what appears to be the case is the director of this film Richard Kelly his original vision was that those questions are answered and they're answered actually quite clearly and explicitly because when he was allowed to make uh, the director's cut and I'm actually just going to I'm going to read a bit from from Wikipedia here just just, just in the director's cut, he um, superimposes several pages from the book we mentioned in it, The Philosophy of Time Travel, onto the screen to explain to everybody what's going on. And I'm just going to read this. This is just uh, straight off of the Wikipedia page, just to give you an idea of what we're dealing with in the director's cut. <laughs> According to the philosophy of time travel, much of the film's plot takes place in an unstable tangent universe, a duplicate of the primary universe from which Donnie originates. Donnie is described as being the living receiver, and is granted superpowers such as strength, telekinesis and premonition. Donnie's task over the course of the film is to return the jet engine, called the artifact in the book, to the primary universe to avert a disaster. During his quest, he is aided by the manipulated living and the manipulated dead, who are the other characters in the film. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> 
what Neil Breen film are we talking about here? <laughs> That's a wonderful laconic statement here uh, following that. These plot points received criticism from reviewers who objected to the narrative's new lack of ambiguity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, um, yeah, so in fact, when we kind of like, uh, like, it was sometime last month when we kind of like, Agreed. I say agreed. Lucy forced me to agree it's like, uh, with threats and bribery to do Dolly Darker. It's we sat January. Da- it's miserable. I don't want to do anything that's too difficult. Although we found our own way of making this particular one difficult. Yeah. This is supposed to be an easy one. So, uh, so yeah. And in fact, we we when we put the film on to watch it, we realized we put it on the director's cast. I kind of like what, Lucy got upset. I just sort of like waved at her. Said, oh, it doesn't matter. We can just watch it. And, and then, then In Excess came on instead of Killing Moon, and I was like, no. No, we are not watching this version. I, and Lucy was right to do that. <laughs> but basically, like, d- it's good, the ambiguity, because ambiguity is a good thing in films, and it's basically, a lot of culture is um, open for, like, abject ruin when you try to apply the kind of analysis it turns out Richard Kelly always anticipated that we should apply to this film. Although I think he, didn't he renege on some comments or something, but you have a very good quote you mentioned. Yes, one of my favourite films of all time, uh, because I, I, I'm, I'm basic, is 2001 A Space Odyssey. And so arg- basic, that's pretty That's pretty cool. Thank you. And, and, and you know, so like the arguments I've often had with people is about, sort of, you know, the intense ambiguity of the film, and I, mm. am, you know, I will defend that to my dying breath. And uh, there was a um, there's a bit of a, not exactly a disagreement between San Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke who um, they produced the screenplay together and Clarke wrote a novelization of the screenplay um, there was uh, where, where Clarke had sort of made a comment along the lines of sort of like oh if you understood the film the first time you watched it we didn't do our job right and Kubrick kind of sort of like pushed back on that a little bit and said that that isn't <clears throat> what uh, he was going for he didn't want to like the point is that 2001 isn't a film which you can, uh, once you've discovered the master cipher, you can decrypt it like a code. This ain't Sherlock, basically. And there's a quote from Kubrick here. Uh, You're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film, and such speculation is one indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level, and I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue or else fear he's missed the point. And I remember when I was a teenager and I first saw this um, film, like, going going online and, like, googling... Um, 2001 meanings and like finding like a, fa- a flash animation the thing it was explain what it was all about it's basically just like repeating the plot of the novel which I mean, like, like yeah, the, the novel, novel makes it fake, very clear about the monoliths are alien probes also, manipulating the, the novel weirdly came out like after the film but the it was, short story had come before yeah there was a short story called The Sentinel which was the initial inspiration for the film about an alien artifact discovered on the moon, but like Cuba basically just took that initial idea of an artifact being discovered on the moon and went in a completely different direction with it. Him and Clark produced the screenplay together, and then concurrently with it, Clark produced an alternative version of the story in the form of the novel 2001, mm-hmm. uh, which departs from the film in several ways and makes it very clear what's happening and why things are happening as they are. And, and these are things yeah. that the film resists. And the po- uh, the reason we're bringing this up is this is. The way that we are approaching Donnie Darko is uh, through Kubrick's perspective. Like, mm. obviously, like, we are not proposing that, like, we've discovered the master cipher that unlocks all of the mysteries and secrets of the film. We haven't, yeah. like, 
this isn't like you know, I said this isn't fucking Sherlock fandom. We've not we're not uh, like looking for sort of like uh, all of the little c- clues hidden in wait, the wait, background. No shade to the Sherlock fandom. I'm sure we love you. I guess <laughs> I don't know who do you are, but like we love you. Do we? I'm sure we do. I'm not sure we do. Um, we don't the break of the enemies, but anyway. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, yes, yeah. exactly. So what we do, what we're going to be doing, we'll be doing <laughs> the thing that we always do on this podcast. We are looking for ways of interpreting this film that we think are productive, are conceptually yeah. productive. Because we're using yeah. it in the way we are using it as material to articulate other ideas. We're 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 wringing it. We're wringing out what we can from mm. it, rather because, than saying that we've discovered this secret message. Because and and you know and that's to say, we're kind of we're not presenting a roadmap. We're presenting a tool. Um, and because a lot of the things we're going to be going into about you know as, as we do in every episode. Um, the the kind of the, some of the kind of more political, some of the more historical, some of the more kind of psychological or theoretical readings that we're going to be applying to this film could equally be used as a grand cipher in the same way that kind of weird sci-fi physics is used um, by some of the blogs that I did actually make a point of reading for context, and they are interesting. Oh my god, some of the name ones are Cunningham because he's. He's cunning and he's tricksy. Uh, but yeah, basically that approach, I think, does simultaneously too much and too little credit to the film, or rather it's a dis- it's an un- unfair displacement of credit where credit's due and not due. Yeah, to uh, give, uh, just to give an example uh, of a, when I was trying to find- This to, is a very long caveat. <laughs> when I was trying to find a, uh, a particular- We're serious to, though, this is serious mode. I was trying to find a particular clip from the film last night, I mean, when we were finalising our notes, I found just like a still image of a shot from the film where it's Dolly and his sister in the kitchen and there's like a pot and there's a jack-o'-lantern of like the rabbit face. And there's just some text underneath it that says, this scene shows us that they are generally a fairly normal family. The lighting here is brighter than the previous scenes, which gives it a light-hearted feel. The mise-en scene shows us a pumpkin that looks like a rabbit. This makes us wonder who made that pumpkin. Like that, this is not the approach that we are taking. No. Like I think, these... I think we've, 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 we've set it to rights. But yeah, so with that very thorough lead up into talking directly about the film, I'm going to talk about different films. <laughs> so basically, um, Going back to what I was saying, like before the summary, we um, we are living in an age in which there has been a bevy of um, horror films or sci-fi films specifically set or dealing with the style of the nineteen ninety eighties. Nineteen ninety eighties. Yeah, the nineteen oh eighty. And that's been a kind of like enduring element of this kind of post horror thing. And just to name a couple of like examples off the bat, of course, we have Stranger Things, the immensely popular Stranger Things. We have uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is kind of in many ways like a precursor to Stranger Things, which is. It's uh, more 70s, isn't it? Uh, no, it's set in 1983, same year oh, as Mandy. Okay. Oh. Mandy, less so. Yeah, no, that's, that, is a, uh, that is a Panos Cosmatos trait. That, um, so whatever he does next is probably also going to be set in 1983. Well, that is the year in which shit happened. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in addition to that, we've had things like... Um, there's a film called House of the Devil, which um, wasn't really part of that wave when it was identified as a wave but it's like was kind of an interesting precursor to that and is a very good very good take on the kind of slasher genre and very very fitting tribute to um 
tribute to John Carpenter, really. Um, yeah, also, the Graham, the, there's a figure actually who I kind of want to talk about somewhere else on this podcast, but it's definitely someone who crosses over into our wheelhouse. It's the filmmaker and composer Graham Resnick, who was sound producer on that. He directed a couple of things. He directed that very good film about kind of like not quite Jonestown with the vice journalist, but um, but yeah, he's also produced some excellent music, which I, I, I definitely would recommend. But the the just to, just to finish off the list, we had It Follows. And um, and also, I guess it. Although I think by the time it came out, the kind of like twenty tens does eighties thing was, it was enough right. of a trope that it was it kind was of getting in on, on the it was riding, riding on, on the, the coattails. Yeah, yeah. It and follows as an interesting case study because it's because it, it it brings together the. Um, it, it, it brings together sig cultural signifiers from multiple decades together. Like it has a, like a definite kind of like 80s coming of age horror movie feeling to it. And yet some of like, the stylistic elements from like the 50s in there. There's oh, I mean, the 80s had that 50s revival thing. It did, but there's also like tech in it. Like that is futurist. Well, that's the thing, actually. It's, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's one of the things that's very striking about It Follows is it kind of like it, it, it is it combines different time periods together like as if they've been kind of like dislocated from one another because it is because yeah. it, it is like the impression i got watching is it is kind of like ambiguously set in the near future but in the near future which is in, of, in the way happen now in the way the present is is repeating uh cultural signifiers from the past well this is kind of why i wanted to bring up mark fisher again and why i tipped a bit of a hat to that uh in the introduction which is um, so one of the core kind of essays uh, that introduces the film of uh, the concept of ontology and explores it in some detail is his his blog, the slow cancellation of the future, which is a which is a term he didn't actually coin. He borrowed that from so Franco Berardi, um, but a critic who wrote an article called After the Future, and um, and then like he's going into well he. Off the back of that, he talks about like a lot of like kind of nostalgia culture and things, but specifically he talks about the idea of the nostalgia mode, which is a Frederick Jameson expression, which I brought up earlier as well, um, make and makes a kind of crucial um, a crucial distinction uh, about things. So he basically he uses the film Body Heat as an example. Body Heat is a 1980s film. And it's unambiguously set in the 1980s, and it has that kind of the kind of film noir element to it. But it is very much. I'm just gonna quickly clarify because which of the two is uh, nostalgia mode? I think basically, if we're thinking about that list of films I covered, it follows because it has this ambiguity where it's exploring 80sness without actually being set in the 80s, um, just to kind of bring the focal thing on, bring the focus onto like thinking about the time period. Um, that's not nostalgia mode, whereas, um, whereas Stranger Things unambiguously is. But the key thing, I think, which is a key thing that you need, that anyone kind of coming across the concept of ontology needs to make as distinction of, is the idea that this is not just nostalgia, this is not just set dressing, some of it is just set dressing, uh, this isn't just kind of enjoying so they're like, oh, we went for an 80s theme here. There is an inherent critique in the nature of hauntology. And the thing that I bring out about all these films, this bevy of films um, that have happened in the last decade or the last decade or so that have dealt with themes of the 80s and that they're 
they're not just reviving the 80s, they are using 80s themes and using the aesthetics and using the ideas and using the kind of like lingering cultural milieu to um, to ask questions about the present or ask ask questions that we didn't or weren't asked at the time but now become now it's become apparent that a need has arisen for such questions to be asked and um, so and and the point I make about this because basically I'm Donnie Darko is kind of like an odd precursor to this wave of films because it is set in the 1980s. Um, there are certain stylistic elements that don't adhere to the 1980s. I want to talk about those kind of maybe later on when we talk about like just stylistics overall because that's it's a definite thing. But um, but I think the key thing that comes out of that is the fact that the 1980s, more than I would argue any other decade. It's getting these kind of films set in the 80s that ask these questions and it's placing that particular decade under a great deal more scrutiny than other decades have, or, you know, or, or other kind of revivals of things. Like, we, one can't say really that something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or even I would say The Love Witch, is, uh, is subjecting the 1960s to that same degree of scrutiny. I would agree. But, but the character of both those films, and uh, I, I liked um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a lot. Uh, the Love Witch, I, I, I didn't. I've re realised in retrospect I didn't like. I just thought I did. Uh, so both long. So I think the lady turned out to be a little bit of a daft. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but those are those are uh, send offs of those decades of movies, especially yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is like it feels like you know, sort of like Tarantino wanting to give the the golden era of Hollywood sort of like in his what is in his view, sort of like the send off that it deserved to get rather than what it actually got. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everything was beautiful, and Roman Polanski did nothing wrong. <laughs> My God, that is just like one man's desire to like. For their fave, not to be problematic. <laughs> I'm not sure about exactly don't know. what maybe, Tarantino maybe that... is doing in that. There is, the, there is the line where they say stuff like, "But like, you know, at, what, at some point that guy's gonna fuck it up," and it's like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, oh geez, yeah, no, that is." Uh... But uh, but anyway, 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 but, yes, but yeah, they, what they, is? But not, but yeah, I think that's the problem <clears throat> that a lot of people um, have had with those films um, is that they aren't subjecting those peri those cultural periods to, as you put it, you know, uh, to scrutiny, to criticism. They are playful homages to and like I said I like yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's movie uh, but, but it's uh, yeah. but it's also like it's a comfortable feel good happy times yay film where a guy kills his wife with a with a with a harpoon but anyway allegedly but, uh, allegedly <laughs> allegedly we never see it but it, yeah but basically my thoughts coming out of this and you know without kind of trying to bridge the gap of why these um, Donnie Darko is kind of separate from that because it kind of isn't, but it kind of is. But um, what is it about the 1980s that um, that has drawn such a degree of criticism? And I would argue, oh, you know, such a such an intense kind of scrutiny. And I would argue that um, there is something there is something inherent about the decade, specifically in America, specifically this idea of America at the end of history, and. Um, and so, like, going back to Donnie Darko, I guess, the main kind of, like, scene setting in terms of, like, time in which it comes out, the, you know, in which it's set, is indicated by, you know, the main kind of cultural hook reference point there, aside from the soundtrack, is um, the is the, the Bush Dukakis election happening. Uh, and that's the main kind of, like, political figure, and that's what they're talking about at the dinner table, you know, I'm voting. I'm voting for Dukakis. 
Hmm. Well. Maybe when you have children of your own who need braces and you can't afford them because half of your husband's paycheck goes to the federal government, you'll uh, regret that. My decision. husband's paycheck? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but this focus on Bush and Dukakis is kind of eliding the fact that the big looming specter in um, in this film is Ronald Reagan and Reaganism and Reagan's America, mm. uh, which plays a big part. And there is, in fact, like, um, this is a slight tangent, but this is something I needed to say at some point in the podcast, I'm going to say it now, but as well as there being like a figurative spectre of Reagan in this film, there is a literal spectre of Reagan in the film where that bit where Donnie is being, uh, has been called to the principal office, principal's office with his parents, um, when, okay, just a bit of content, a bit, a bit of background about this scene, so I just want to state up front, this film has some remarkable moments of comedic timing, <laughs> um, like the fact that, like, that meeting is happening and it gets to the question, what exactly did your son say about, um, about the test thing? Um, but basically, they're kind of like dithering about an answer and then it just like pans around to Mrs. Farmer, who we didn't realise up until that point was actually in the room as this scene was taking place. <laughs> just like a kind of like, like a fucking jump scare. She's just there, this terrifying woman. And she's like, and she says the immortal line. I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. <laughs> And Donnie's dad stifles a giggle. And it's, um, this, yeah, it, it's, um, it's good. Like, but, this is what we were saying, like, this is actually quite a good film. It's a very competently yeah. made and an amusing yeah. film. But, um, um, during that scene, um, and I think this is the only time we actually see him, but, like, reflected, I think it's the glass over a bookcase. I'm not even sure because it looks like a shelf, but for some reason there's a reflection on it. But we see the reflected ghostly face of Ronald Reagan just fucking there. But the more figurative spectre is the kind of just the economic context in which the film is taking place in that this is very much indicative of like kind of like 1980s pure yuppiedom. As in this is a like a family that, you know, he's from a very wealthy family and he's going to a private school and one of the first scenes that takes place is on a fucking golf course <laughs> where he wakes up and a neighbour who is a doctor who lives on their same street and knows their dad personally and they go golfing together wakes him up and it's like, oh, it's Andy Dorico's kid. Um, that is, is like pure, that is, you know, that is the time and I think that is a very significant um, thing that speaks both about the time and the context of the film. This is something that's important to um, mention in the context of our discussion of um, uh, return to first principles and the meaning of hauntology because one of the ways that Derrida describes hauntology is as the um, things that are things that are present making themselves absent or <laughs> things that have been made absent making themselves present you know, um, and one and this is why it's important to discuss the economic backdrop of <laughs> the setting because these are the thing because their bath is precisely the thing which is always pushed uh just slightly out of direct consciousness that's yeah. something about the actual conditions of production the actual nature of those relationships and the fact that 
all the things that we're seeing here, like the lives that they there live, are no poor people are, in the film. There are no poor people in the film. So this is like this is you know like I said in the, in the in the synopsis, this is a very particular kind of small town America. This is suburban America. This is it, is it Virginia or is it like middle? The town is called Middlesex, and it is actually a town, a real town. Although like the Wikipedia entry for it is just like. Donnie Darko is set here, even though it was filmed in California and is very obviously in California and looks like California. <laughs> but yeah, I it, mean, California looks like everywhere, though. That's why Hollywood's there. But, that's one um, of the interesting things about uh, the Darko family. It is Virginia, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. one of the New England. One of the interesting things about the uh, about about this is the name, like that his that his his name is Darko because like I don't think that's... he is uh, Namibian. Yeah, like like I looked up like what, what is that? It's not Namib- Namibian. It's it, Namibian. It's an it's an Ashanti oh, uh, name of the the Ashanti people who live in Ghana and uh, Ghana Co- uh, Ghana uh, and Cote d'Ivoire. But yeah, it's but which like and it's uh, it feels kind of obvious that the name was constructed in order to sound spooky because it's got dark dark in it. in it. But at the same time, it's kind of striking that I that's think not it a, more it's, Hungarian than anything. It's not a wasp name. Is the yeah. thing. It's a point I'm Crucial. trying to drive. I'm trying to drive at Lucy. If you let me get a word in HRA. Uh But yeah, it's it's there is something kind of like interesting about them. Something the film never addresses is the fact that they're a wasp family, but they don't have a wasp name. And that is something that is something that's, is something that's just present in the film without ever actually being talked about or addressed. I actually think there's something that's quite that is is arguably kind of interesting. That's going to be a lot of other people that everyone else does. This isn't this isn't an avenue of discussion. I want to go. Yeah, they all the names like at, like the you know like Anderson Cunningham Garland and yeah. so on. But uh, but yeah, farmer. Um, but yeah. Basically, the thing that I wanted to, like, there's that, so that's the economic context, and that is, like, that is in the the essence of neoliberalism making itself present. Um, The other thing is actually to do with a core part of the film, which is the kind of, uh, the Jim Jim Cunningham, um, Mrs. Farmer religious arc that's happening, which is... Well, pseudo religious well this is the um, whole thing okay so basically to, the so. point the point about that is people describe it when they talk about the film very often as new agey and that's actually a misnomer it is not new age it is in fact extremely specifically indicative of christian new thought which is kind of like a 200 year old tradition it emerged out of like the 19th century yeah but it emerged out of the, yeah, the transcendentalist movement and gave us things like uh, Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian science movement which sounds like a band when I say it like that <laughs> um, but um, who are still just about going and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> despite I mean there's none of the original members and it's actually Mary Baker Eddy's son who's like also 100 years old <laughs> anyway anyway um, basically like this gave us Christian science and stuff but one of the it's nearly topical at this point even though the democratic primaries are still happening as we record but uh, she's dropped out of the race as of like two months ago oh, but one, a, one particular figure who um, I bring up now is uh, Marianne Williamson uh, the noted crazy Marianne Williamson who was very much a Who's very much a product of this age, um, of this age that we're talking about, the age in which Donnie Darko is set on his coffin. <coughs> uh, Excuse me. I'm, I'm choking on my uh, San Pellegrino listener. Bougie cunt. <laughs> drinking, I'm drinking bit. I'm drinking craft bit. <laughs> Some of us observe the Lent and fast mm. losing. 
But basically, yeah, so um, she is like 100% of that ilk. So it's also a misnomer to call her New Age. She's not New Age, she's just groovy Christian. And, yeah, because and like, specifically, sort of like, yeah. uh, specifically New Age as a particular uh, spiritual current is not part of, it, it's not really part of the uh, Christian milieu as such. It is, uh, or rather, it's heretical. <laughs> Uh, arguably, uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> Sorry, but it's it, me being all fire and brimstone. <laughs> it's like Sean's the Catholic one, but I'm the one who's like heresy. <laughs> but I was the, like, man, um, that's gonna be hella clipping. I'm sorry. But you know, sort of like, like New Age specific. Weird, yeah. New Age is specifically descent, kind of like ultimately descended from sort of like what one might call, or what I will call, the post-hermetic milieu of uh, theosophy and uh, the various splinters that came, the various the various splinters that came out from. Uh, the golden dawn and so on mm. like in fact you know and like like that's why they're really specific ideas in the way like astrology which isn't present in a new thought but astrology is sort of like is one of the um is part or is, is like along with alchemy and theurgy is one of like the three prongs of uh hermetic uh, esoteric christianity but mm -hmm. that so it is like it has a current that leads back into christian History and this is actually the kind of like hermetic Christianity of the Rena of the Renaissance that are Dame Francis Yates, the gal herself. Um, <laughs> this is this is all fantastic. We are getting one. too involved in this video. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's what sort of like that's the, the specific lineage of new of of, of new age thought. But and, Christian new yeah. but Christian new thought is American Protestant yes. thought. And to just locate it on um, just working out a timeline here to locate it on uh, Marianne Williamson. Um, basically, we are looking at a, well, she kind of got popular in the early, like, 80s and 90s, um, but she was actually, and that was when her big, I think it was like 1992 even, or 19, late 80s or something, that her big book, A Return to Love, which is her main kind of, like, flagship text and is still in circulation quite a bit, came out. Basically, she was the one who brought a lot of these ideas to kind of, like, the, the West Coast, but she was... A product of the East Coast. She was living in New York in the 1970s, uh, and um, is this, is this she, Shookman or Williamson? We're talking about we're talking about Williamson, but I'm talking about her discovery of Shookman. So she story, discovered yeah. um, a posthumously published book by a woman called Catherine Shookman, uh, Helen Shookman. I think it's Helen Shookman, um, called A Course in Miracles, and she published this after, like this was published after her death, uh, and it kind of it was what brought the it was written, you know, it was, a, it was a literary success, it was a very popular book, and it's specifically because it struck a chord with the emergent yuppie classes of kind of uh, the Nixon era and so going into Reagan's America, and so gained a lot of kind of cultural traction there among exactly the kind of people we're seeing depicted in the film Donnie Darko. And it being a private school, it's like, it's fairly self-explanatory as to how such a kind of like framework of ideas and a group of people or you know uh, uh, people affiliated under that banner even slightly sketchy figures as it turns out um become quite influential in the school system there uh but yeah so basically that is that is kind of as almost as indicative of the time period as um as just the 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 economic just conditions that I outlined earlier. But one other thing, actually, just like a bit of a throwaway point, which is, I find kind of interesting. I'm just turning the light on as well, because it's getting quite dark in here. But one of the things I found quite interesting is the fact that 
even though he's set up as kind of like the antithesis of um, of Donnie Darko, but or you know Donnie Darko is set up as the antithesis or antagonist towards um, towards Jim Cunningham and Mrs. Farmer. Should we the, just the, the, the physics just, they're so, working on is basically a kind of similar framework. So can we can we just explain for uh, for listeners who perhaps haven't seen the film recently exactly what role Jim Cunningham plays in the film? Okay, wait. So yeah, he's basically he's the one. He's a teacher. He's no, he's a local author who is brought in by a teacher who is very much influenced by this kind of thought to give presentations and then just generally take a very active role in school life and within the institution and become very much enmeshed in its systems of power, much in the same way Jimmy Savile did with a lot of charities and, um, and, and hospital trusts. And then, like Jimmy Savile was revealed to be a mega pedo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think the specific immortal, horrible line is for, uh, on the local news is the firefighters discovered a, quote, kiddie porn dungeon uh, <laughs> under his house, which, okay. which, is, it's, uh, which is horrible and insensitive. But yes, the... Uh, but yes, yeah. and what... The, I think we need to talk about specifically, like, what, yeah, the what, physics. Yeah. Yes, yeah, sorry. So, yes. basically... Uh, just a bit of a one-on-one about like how this Christian New Thought works. It's basically, it's like a kind of post-enlightenment version of Christianity in which they try to um, summarize, they try to treat uh, a theological model like a kind of scientific or even like alchemical or you know, a measurable scientific process. And if you've ever been like, this is like an archetype we bring up a lot, but if you've ever been pinned down at a fucking freshers party by someone who's just started studying philosophy or even just come to uni and taken a bit of an interest uh or just anyone kind of dumb but like someone who some, has some things they reckon yeah, yeah they reckon some things and they believe in quote a force or like god might exist but as a kind of form of science that we don't quite understand yet that's that basically has its ba- that what they're talking about there is christian new thought and what what um Schuchman did which Marianne Williams, well, which we see, um, which Marianne Williamson popularized, when what we see in the film is this idea of like treating, treating um, like what is effectively a kind of theological model as a kind of um, as a scientific polarity. It's very into bi- binaries and spectrums and working out very complex issues by hammering them down to a scientific thing in the same way that a lot of um, kind of limited understandings of science can try and bring things down to very simple equations. Um, but the thing, but you know, that's kind of, it's even, it's even there in the script. Donnie Darker says, this is, this is, uh, it's not that simple. Shove this book up your anus. Shove your, shove, shove your like attitudinal beliefs and your kind of Norman Vincent Peale-esque power of positive thinking ass shit. Shove it up your ass. And, and yeah, and so like basically, that whole discu- that whole discourse about like the spectrum of fear and love. Um, I'm going to at this point in the thing play a quote from this this exact form of ideology, this exact form of like politicized rhetoric emerging from the th- the weird theology of Christian New Thought entering a national stage via Marianne Williamson's striking contribution to the Democratic debates, which someone has conveniently set to the Twin Peaks themed <laughs> music uh, very effectively. Also, check out um, Vince McMahon 
set to the Twin Peaks theme music. Just, you know, just do Donald these Trump things, please. You must understand. Politics talk. He's not going to be beaten just by somebody who has plans. He's going to be beaten by somebody who has an idea what this man has done. This man has reached into the psyche of the American people and he's harnessed fear for political purposes. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me, please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field, and sir. Basically, the point I was making about that is, yeah, like, if you want to understand Christian New Thought, just listen to Marianne Williamson and watch this film. If you remember, um, um, about 10 or 15 years ago now, must have been when The Secret came out and was everywhere, that little book. That yeah. is the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a manifestation of the same... Christian New Thought, power of positive thinking approach to spiritual life. And I think it's interesting as well, sort of like uh, the observation that you've made, Lucy, that this is something that's popular with with your your yuppies, with your uh, aspiring business class, that it it gives a kind of pseudo-spiritual veneer to uh, what is fundamentally an incredibly empty life, devoid of meaning, and it, because you have yeah. hollowed yourself out in order to become a vessel of capital. And it was very much cashing. And it's cashing, still, yeah, literally cashing in, uh, in a very literal sense, on the post sixties malaise, the failed cultural is, revolution. And that. it's interesting as well that all that kind of thinking is is an extremely goal orientated <laughs> form of spirituality. It's not about self like gaining uh, a <coughs> reflectiveness about yourself and your place in uh, and your place in uh, in the world against uh, against others and against history and against the future and so on simply for the sake of it it's very much about so why well you do deserve that car though and here's how god who's actually an energy that moves through your brain when you think right good yeah. thoughts um is yeah it, it's yeah it, it, it's um which is you know it's, it is um a comp- it is a manifestation of that same ideology. It is uh, of reducing um, all one's goals in life to simple uh, to economic goals, to these things that you can uh, get, to these things that you can have, you deserve to have. Yeah, and we need to keep going because we're actually an hour in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this has all been very good. But basically, I'm going to tie up this by now tangent. Well... Yeah, that's the thing, actually, I wanted to just quick... The, the thing I was going to quickly say was, like, Donnie's weird world physics thing, which is seen as, like, the actual dominant physics or working mechanism of the film, is, on a side level, eerily similar to the way these people talk about the world. But that's I think that's something we want to discuss in more detail later on. But the one little thing I want to tie this bit up with before I go back into, kind of, like, the Reagan era is one of the things that this film does very well, which I think needs to, these need to stand as kind of milestone points within this episode, that that this is a good film, is it captures teenagerhood very, very well, this film. And one of, like, the most relatable scenes in the film is the just gloriously spiteful, like, jubilation on the part of, um, is it Samantha, his sister, the Maggie Gyllenhaal character, like the 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 un, uh, unfiltered joy she has at discovering that like this the teacher guy is a pedo, <laughs> like he she's just like she's sitting there on the couch and it's just like oh my god, <laughs> it's like, that's so. 
beautiful. That's it's so, so nihilistic and so. Uh, I'm uh, talking uh, so much. Imagine making my earbuds. And there's uh, oh my god, and there's like the the bit where um uh, the character uh, uh oh god, let me just find her name. So it's 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 uh Charita Chen when she's when she's doing her uh, dance piece <laughs> and Donnie's uh idiot bodies are just scratches. It's so up. obviously his voice as well. It's so distinctive. It's just, it's get so- off the stage, Charita. <laughs> It's so horrible. It's so, and it, but yeah, but that's um, this is something I, I'm actually going to be coming to in a bit. Like there's like there's a lot of like just like very sincere adolescent <laughs> moments in this film as well, for, yeah. especially from Donnie. But, but, uh, back onto the hauntology thing. Though. Yes. So what is it about the era that makes it like warrants this degree of analysis? Um, that key question that, and this is actually a point I'm gonna do another callback to an earlier episode um jacob's ladder and the cultural impact of the vietnam war that whole idea of like vietnam war the vietnam war complex um that is you know to give a brief succinct summary so post world war ii there emerged a sense that america had a special destiny in the world that it was um well, that's that exact, a, well, that, that I mean, that had, had been going been back there. since like to fucking seventeen seventy six from the very beginning, and yes. it's like kind of this ideal democracy. It is this, the, the model of success of a country, and that all countries will eventually follow suit of a rational, then, of a rational yeah. society. And there was yes. a kind of very potent sense of manifest destiny, which was shattered by um, getting the most kind of like powerful and advanced military in the world getting beaten by some very very determined farmers and peasants and just like people who people who believed in a cause enough to lay down their lives for it and then suddenly the a lot of myths were shattered when that happened when the pullout happened and it sent the united states into a bit of a spiral and um at that point um i'm at this point actually i'm going to bring in a quote because this is um it was into this kind of cultural malaise and despair and confusion that Ronald Reagan emerged and became very successful as a figure. And the th- the key thing about Ronald Reagan is he is an actor. And that is, he is a man distinctly prone to bullshit and to myth-making. Um, you know, and uh, I'm going to talk more about this in a moment, but like, I think, actually, there's one point I want to make up front, which our pal Rich um, pointed out is like, Apparently, he just like one thing he did was he met the Israeli ambassador and just straight up said that he was present at the liberation of I think Dachau, and this is un like pro- extremely provably untrue. He was not there. He was in California for the entirety of World War Two making films, but he was just like. Just decided. Oh, okay. It suits an agenda here, but I'm just gonna literally. I'm gonna make, act the I'm gonna, part. I'm gonna of... make this claim, and but yeah, I think so. I'm gonna read a quote from Rick Perlman's um, a book called *The Invisible Bridge: The Fall of Richard Nixon and the Rise of Reagan*. I think of a friend who grew up in California in the 1960s and 70s. I'd wanted to share this manuscript with her, thinking it would benefit from her brilliance. She told me that I'd best not send it. She couldn't think straight about Reagan for her rage. Her beef, and that of millions of others, was simple. That all the turbulence of the 60s and 70s had given the nation a chance to finally reflect critically on its power, to shed its arrogance, to become more humble and a better citizen of the world, to, quote, grow up, or to, to in italics, to grow up. 
to Reagan's, uh, but Reagan's rise nipped that imperative in the bud. Immanuel Kant defined the Enlightenment, the sweeping 18th century intellectual come political movement that saw all settled conceptions of society thrown up in the air, which introduced radical new notions of liberty and dignity, dethroned God, and made human reason the new measure of moral worth, a little like the 1960s and 70s, as man's, quote, emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. For these citizens, what Reagan achieved foreclosed that imperative, that Americans might learn to question leaders ruthlessly, throw aside the silly notion that America was always innocent, and think like grown-ups. They, they had been proposing a new definition of patriotism, one built upon questioning authority and unsettling ossified norms. Then along came Ronald Reagan, encouraging citizens to think like children, waiting for a man on horseback to rescue them. A tragedy. And yeah, so that is, that is, Ron, that is the figure that Ronald Reagan was, the actor, the cowboy, the one who David Lynch actually said he liked Reagan because he reminded him of a cowboy. That was a, that was a weird kind of element of Lynchian political thinking that emerged there. But yeah, and I he, think this is why, yeah. the de why the 80s, it ha going back, this is why the 80s is a decade that kind of demands interrogation because this is... Uh, it's a the, hotbed of political myth-making. The infantilization of the American mind occurs there. So yeah. that's why there's perhaps a drive, simultaneously a drive to return there because of the perceived cultural safeness of that, of this period where everything's fine now. Mm. Everything's fine. It's great. Like, it's great. But um, a, along with a more critical want to undermine that or to say, but what's it? What's actually going on here? If we think what, about also in the nostalgia mode, uh, culturally, in the same way, we're getting very much a kind of like, well, the last 20 years has seen a lot of a kind of like 80s stylistic resurgence, which may or may not have necessarily to do with the same degree of analysis, but in many cases does. But uh, the big thing in the 1980s was the 1950s. I think Reaganism has a large part to do with that because the 1980s positioned the 1950s as the the fossil, the crystallization and perpetuation of this idea of the perpetual innocence of American power, because it was the period immediately after World War Two, when things were very prosperous, when things were right, and whenever people talk, you know, whenever like people, archly conservative people, want to talk about a good golden age, when they want to quote make America great again, uh, that is, um, they're talking about the 1950s because it's like kind of. It's the modern one that they can, it's the most modern example they can point to that's sufficiently distant, but sufficiently idealized to say, no, this is America done right. And this is what we should use as the model going forward. However, dubious a concept of forward then becomes at that point. But um, I guess the thing I wanted to kind of bring up in this context was um, the sense that so I talked earlier about the 80s receiving a great degree of scrutiny and one of the reasons and you know being a principal focus for kind of hauntological writings and one of the things that uh, Fisher via Derrida picks up about the notion of hauntology is that it represents a form of failed mourning, a failure to put the past in the past to kind of resolve itself and be treated as a reference point as such. And I would argue that like the greatest moment of failed mourning came out of the 1980s when there was this intense political myth-making. This was when the idea of like uh, the Cold War stopped being a kind of complex di a diplomatic thing and became a mo matter of like evil empire to be taken down by good kingdom or whatever. And, um, and was almost like, was actually almost concluded on a myth because 
it was effectively ended by the threat of a super weapon developed by a science fiction writer that never existed. That is the uh, Larry Niven's Star Wars shield. That was under... That was and in fact like, the name itself because they're going back yeah. to going, so, going yeah. back to Mark Fisher. So you know, one of the problem like, the problems he has with Star- he had with Star Wars the fact that you know not only is it a big bold uh, ultimately empty expensive spectacle but also an extremely simple and backwards looking backwards looking literally you know the it's a revival of like Flash Gordon shit yeah uh, it's like the kind of serial TV western it's like Bonanza it's like even like the title crawl yeah. and all that is, is straight from uh, serials like that yeah, yeah. As opposed to the as yeah, so so we're looking at the eighties as a site of failed mourning, and really, you know, this was when what the thing, you know, this is what led up to, this is what made it possible to talk about things like the the end of history and have that taken seriously, and in a sense, yeah, it's impossible to mourn a mode a, a phase of history that the people living through it were never quite sure even took place in the first place because it wasn't real. It's interesting and, as yeah. well that the um, the film itself, you kind of only know it's set in the 80s because of like the Bush Dukakis stuff, but it, without that you wouldn't really know. It, well, and, and I, the, reason I, I had, for, yeah. the reason for was is that Richard Kelly did actually want to make it explicitly set in the 80s, a period film, mm. essentially. And the studio pushed back on this and they wanted something that felt a bit more uh, contemporary, which is why the film is this kind of like strange halfway between the 80s and the 90s they're dressed as 90s gen x kids but the halloween party is very 80s yes which is why it feels kind of like displaced because of this and which kind of uh emphasize what you're saying about sort of like the fact that the 80s is kind of is actually phantasmagoric really yeah and the fact that like donald trump is now the president who is like a fake billionaire Essentially, he's a, he yeah. plays the character of a billionaire, and he was he was the yuppie god figure of this era, and he's he's been he had been planning to do a presidency ever since that point. But you know, it's like one of the things that I think there's a very good article about just summing up all the different times at which Trump is the spectre of American psycho. Like uh, from Patrick Bates um, makes multiple references to Trump uh, throughout that, and like I think when he's talking about a restaurant that he wants to get a reservation at, it's like, well, if it's good enough to, for 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 Donny to eat at, it's um, it's good enough for me. And he's referring there to Donald Trump, and yeah, that's that's a big deal. But yeah, so basically, How, it never say... happened and it never ended, and that's why we can't get over the eighties. Yes. And, um, but there's also all sorts of other shit happening in this film. Yes, so we're going to uh, move into uh, discussing sort of like some of the more uh, discussing the film itself in a little bit more detail, and specifically, I want to talk about, uh, predictably, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the incredibly on the nose Jesus symbolism that we have running through this film. Ever on brand, Sean. Ever on brand. Let me just scroll 
through my notes. Here we are. So, like the Christ symbolism in this film is so absolutely smash you in the face on your nose that I think there's a temptation to just sort of like either dismiss it or possibly not even like notice it's there because it is so. It's so. It's so there. It's so there. Uh, like there's you know sort of like. Um, the scenes where just sort of like the cabin just zooms in on the cross on top of the school, yeah. and like most most significantly, the most most significantly, I think is the uh, the scene where when Donnie's in the cinema with uh, with with his girlfriend Gretchen, and he has a vision of Frank there, and Frank kind of like tells him to go and burn down Jim Cunningham's house. Yeah. and when that like Gretchen falls asleep, and he, when he leaves the cinema, he's like he walk out. You see on the um, oh shit, I forgot on, about that. Yeah, on the marquee above. Like, so there's a shot where it's just Donnie, like, with his hoodie up, with lightning crashing above him, and on the marquee, The Last Temptation of Christ is playing. Uh, it, I actually remember, like, watching it as a naive 17 year old and thinking at that moment, a bit on the nose, though, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and, and I think this is actually. I, I remember thinking, I have nice to have a girlfriend. And this is, a, I think this is actually, like, although, like, I know we said earlier that isn't a cipher, but unlocks the film and reveals what it's really about. However, there is also kind of a cipher that unlocks the film and reveals what it's really about. It is <laughs> so I think it's very interesting that our attention is specifically drawn to the film The Last Temptation of Christ in that so it's, it's if you who directed uh, that Martin Scorsese. Ooh. It's very I, I like I like it a lot. It's a Willem, De, Willem Dafoe plays Jesus. Oh. A uh, pilot he only appears in one scene. A uh, pilot only appears in one scene but he's played by David Bowie. Natch. Nice. Uh, Judas is slightly confusingly played by Harvey Keitel. Harvey, Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel is a magnificent performer. Uh, delivering the whole thing with a thick Brooklyn accent, and it's, it's wonderful. All, uh, yeah, because all, all of the uh, the, um, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, are all American, and all the Romans are British because they're the villains and it's Hollywood. And we hadn't quite got over the fifties at this point. Heads <laughs> uh, pilot played yeah. by um, Bowie. Anyway, but anyway. The it's thing kinda, about this film, cool, the thing about this film is, it's a very, it's a very interesting film actually. Uh, go, go seek it out. So I'm gonna like, well, no, spo spoilers. Jesus dies at the end. But, uh, <laughs> but what happens uh, is about like before uh, the half, like the point where like half, the last half hour of the film is very, very strange because what happens when Christ is on the cross is an angel appears to him in the form of an androgynous child who says to him, it is not the will of the father that you die like this. And she pulls the nails out of his hands and he descends from the cross and like follows her and like just lives a normal life. Hmm. Like just le 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 uh, leave leaves um, Golgotha and like he hooks up with uh, Mary Magdalene and they have sex and then she like then she dies and like but, she, but it's fine when she dies because the angel explains that she died in the moment of the most supreme happiness at this moment and that's why God killed her here and so she is now immortal in him and then he goes and marries um, he marries two women and he raises a family and uh, he has a very interesting confrontation with Paul the Apostle at one point actually where Paul just like says I don't care if you're or not my Christ is more important than you because that's what the world is yeah, it's a very very strange it's very very strange because he's kind of living this ordinary life that the life he always wanted to have as a man where he's just an ordinary man with a family and raising his children lives to a ripe old age and then at that point when he's on his deathbed Judas comes crashing into the room who's also an old man and calls him a traitor so you've left behind everything that you said you were going to do you were going to change the world and all that and he realizes at that point that this 
all of this has been a deception. This is a fantasy he's been offered by the devil. Yeah. Uh, uh, and he realises that, no, he must actually go through with it. And he realises at that point that he never left the cross. He's still there. And that's when he gives the joyful cry, according to the Gospel of, Ma uh, Gospel of Luke, it is accomplished or it, it is done and dies on the cross. And I think that's... This is why I kind of think that a way of reading this film is that everything that kind of happens in it from the point of the engine crashing into the Dolly's bedroom onwards is essentially a fan Donnie's fantasy of an idealised life. Hmm. Um, because, and this is like one, one of the things that was really striking when we rewatched this film is the fact that Donnie can't do, and I think this is a problem in the movie actually, Donnie can't do a single thing without being validated. I mean, he's a little bit merry. He's a little bit of a Marty student. He is. Uh, like, for example, like, um, like it's okay that he flooded the school because he met his girlfriend. It's okay he burned down that man's house because it turned out he was a paedophile. Like, all of these, like, he, and, like, there's a bit where he, like, stands up and confronts Jim Cunningham, like, lays some righteous truth on him. Literally everyone claps. Literally everyone stands up and claps. Uh, and at that point he calls <laughs> Cunningham the Antichrist, interestingly, setting himself up as the Christ ah. figure once again. So I didn't. I didn't really think about that with the other half of the equation when I watched it the first oh. time. But oh my goodness, it's there. Thank you, Sean. So and I and I think this is um, an interesting way of viewing the film because especially when we could like come to sort of like what is like the question that everybody really kind of like goes away asking about this movie. And this great triumphant ambiguity in the centre of it is of who is Frank the Rabbit? Mm. Because although on the one hand, like this is why uh, it's Samantha's boyfriend. This is what, but at the same time, that's bullshit and rubbish, and I reject it because I can because the author is dead and the reader lives. And I, I learned this from someone when I was sixteen who was like also a sixteen-year-old fan of the film and a goth. So. You know, this is fan theory shit. I'm yeah. So, so um, it's a delicious thing, though. It's like, oh, why, that's why he's in the house. That's why you went to get beer. Yeah. yeah. So this is why I kind of. Um, so basically, I kind of like decided to just throw some different ways of analysing this film at the wall to see what sticks. So like, so um, and yeah, this is what we were, I was saying Speak earlier. To that. All interpretation is construction. This is an interpretation that I've constructed by re by reference to uh, the psychoanalytic or the analytical psychology of Carl Gustav Jung. And the thing I'm going to say right now is problematic weird, boy. Weird signal does not endorse the works, ideas, or Life I mean, of like, Carl Jung. He scrutiny, um, but I think I'm turned off him mostly because he's just like, he's the one who's so often used by fucking charlatans and purveyors of woo to lend some sort of like clinical or scientific legitimacy to that like self-involved narcissistic bullshit. It's and very interesting. I think that... it needs to be taken for what it is and spurned but it's, you know kept kept in a kind of like academic quarantine i guess but i think that although like the language that i found the most helpful for discussing this film is Jungian language i don't think it necessarily puts us puts us at odd at odds with more traditional like freudian psychoanalytic theory and actually something i oh want boy. to say i want to say is inter an interesting comparison between reading uh jung and and i also want to sort of acknowledge right now i've not read that much uh of jung i've not read all that much freud it's very possible that i'm misrepresenting these uh, thinkers please correct me if there are if there are exceptions to this but something i have found in my research of this is that although freud does talk a lot of frank yeah frankly a lot of bollocks a lot of the time frank uh, but he <laughs> Thank you. 
but there is like you can like follow a line of reasoning there like you can understand sort of like especially if you place it in sort of like a historical context and like in, in, in the context of him as a person and the work that he's doing and like the horizon of knowledge that existed to him at that point in history and so on these are things that make sense to think and you can follow that line of reasoning in a way that what i've read of you and you can't do with you and i think a lot of it is does come across as, and maybe there's like more like theoretical work that he did elsewhere where he spelled out his reasoning a bit, but a lot of it again feels like him saying, and I reckon. The, the, I mean, like the, the end point of Freud is the more comprehensive understanding of the psyche and the, uh, the unending attempt to unpick the warrant, you know, the, the various different faculties of the human mind. The end point of Jung is goblins and synchronicities. And some very, very good, fun paranormal programming <laughs> from the likes of Ghost Adventures Guy and Greg Newkirk. Lovely, lovely Greg Lovely, Newkirk. lovely Greg Newkirk. Uh, we might, maybe, we maybe will try and get uh, um, Greg and Dana on. I genuinely have so much love of Helia. It's love so, those guys. So, it's so good. Anyway. Also, you do get, you, you will get a like. <laughs> possibly even RT if you mention Hellia from the boy himself. Oh, I got a like from him when I because I mentioned I watched it all when, like watched all of that series to in bed at one AM when I had flu. I like uh, I like uh, I got a like from him when I said that I couldn't get over the fact that it looks like a extremely protracted Portlandia sketch. So it shows he's a good sport. He does like I get a really good, good energy boy. from him. Good vibes. Anyway, I just want that life. I want to be. <laughs> In a, like, that kind of, like, I want a sort of Portlandian, kind of Cascadian green sheen over everything I do while wearing a ghost t-shirt. I definitely do want to sort of, like, piss around West Virginia, try and find Mothman. I mean, this is, this is where we're going to end up. This where, this is Inevitable. Inevitably, once I become, like, ordained by, like, a dubious church or... <laughs> I mean, you do, aren't you, like, kind of on the, on track to get ordained by a not necessarily too dubious church or does it have to be dubious i think for, i think for it has our to own be purposes dubious, yes okay anyway, well then that's suggest speak to that anyway anyway so back to the film sorry and i think anyway, one of the reasons i think like you is a good <laughs> you about rabbit with one b in the notes <laughs> rabbit <laughs> one of the reasons i think that uh, this Jungian approach is appropriate for the film though because this is a film that is very much about the symbols is about it is about these quite archetypal figures that you see in there and that is Jung's whole shebang right yeah and <clears> the <throat> concept and this concept but i and, and the reason why i think this is, does actually and, and i could kind of like it's like i said this kind of started off as me throwing stuff at the wall to see what's stuck and this did actually stick quite well and i think it's actually just quite a fruitful tool for uh for use for analysis of this of this film is the notion of the shadow mm. uh i think that's actually quite uh a neat and useful idea of you so uh the shadow it refers to the uh the elements of the self which the ego which um c conscious i self right the conscious part of the self cannot accept as being part of the self so it has to project it outwards um this isn't um and because in so doing these uh elements of the self don't have to be like understood as being part of the self they're they're external they're external to us and examples of this include um compulsions and desires and so on which can't be consciously integrated into the self so they have to be placed outside and i think what Frank the Rabbit is is um, in, like in in the midst of his psychosis, um, 
Donnie is projecting his violent compulsions outside into a figure that exists outside of himself, so it's not him doing these things. Because like Tyler Durden, kind of yeah, like cause, you know, cause, like what happens in you know, sort of like Frank tells him to flood the school and burn down Jim Cunningham's house and all that. I mean, is I Frank have my own is... readings behind this, which we're going to go into in some detail later. Yeah, so, but, like, these... This is an entirely pointless thing to say, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'll stop interfering. <laughs> so, what, uh, yeah, so... Uh, God, sorry, where was I? Yeah, so... Uh, symbols. Symbols, yes. So, Semiotic. So, yes, yeah, so, with these compulsions uh, and desires having been rendered as a figure that is a fantastical figure external to Donnie, which is making him do these things, this is why I, this is... <sighs> And if we understand this film, like the life that's being spelled out of this film, you know, he gets a girlfriend, like, or everyone, like, he's validated in his actions while still being kind of moody and interesting and oh so dark and all that. Uh, I think that sort of like in the way, kind of like Frank is the arrival of certain truths about himself which he can't like really deal with. And I'm gonna just read a quote from Jung. Oh yes. Um, but uh, because the, like the risk, the, like the danger of the shadow for Jung is the fact is uh, is becoming lost in its unreality, and the quote here is this is from his book Ion Researches into the Phenomenology of the Self. The effect of projection is to isolate the subject from his environment, since instead of a real relation to it, there is now only an illusory one. Projections change the world into the replica of one's unknown face. In the last analysis, therefore, they lead to an autoerotic or autistic condition in which one dreams a world whose reality remains forever unattainable. I think that, that this is why I brought up The Last Temptation of Christ here. Like, I think that in the face of certain truths about himself, including and especially his mortality, um, Donnie has psychotically constructed or projected this fantasy of what his life actually is like. And Frank's arrival in that, with his destructive compulsions, are these points where these repressed factors in Donnie's life are making themselves known to him again as these intrusions into the, fant into the fantasy, these fantastical intrusions into the fantasy, uh, as it were. Mm. And this is where... So I kind of, like I said, I kind of decided to sort of, like, keep digging with this to see where I could go with it. And nice. I ended up in a rather... I'm very glad you did. Thank you. And I sort of ended up falling down a rabbit hole, as it were. Um, just to pursuing... should we bring in the, the, the thing about death at this point? Because I noticed you're oh, moving, sorry, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. moving on to kind of the kind of uh, homoerotic reading, the querying yeah, 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 of yeah, this yeah, bit. But yeah, yeah. but yeah. So I want... Yeah, go on. So yeah, I want to emphasize, I've already mentioned in passing, uh, this being a projection of Donnie's mortality. And I think that, like I said, sort of like what we see in The Last Temptation of Christ is Christ dying on the cross and that being interrupted by this fantastical projection, which you know is, is a sinful temptation, is a deception that's offered to him of a life he could have, which he then has to reject in order to die. I think the same patterns appear in the film. I think uh, that... You know, it begins with the jet engine smashing into his room, but it's fine because he wasn't there. Uh, and we have spilled out this illusion of a life where Donnie doesn't die and things are great because he get you know, again, sort of like these typical teenage rites of, pas of passage <clears throat> happen in his life. And but and I think that's why in some ways, like Frank is 
because one because the shadow Jung puts it the shadow is the projection of the in of the of the deficiencies of the self and in some ways death is a deficiency it's it's this concrete limitation to who we are and by not being able to integrate that truth into himself in uh, like the Heideggerian in like in this terms of Heideggerian authenticity of, of willing one's own death ultimately or being able to will one's own death or will the truth of one's death this is why we have this external figure there and because when Frank takes off the bunny mask and we see what's underneath the suit we see not only Donnie's sister's boyfriend we see him after he's Allegedly. dead <laughs> after he's been yeah. killed we see him with the bullet wound in his eye. We see a corpse. We see an animated corpse. Frank is a projection of death as such. The fact of death. And the act, not only the fact of death, but the act of killing. Mm. And the film ends with like, because, you know, we have this prophecy of the end of the world coming. Not Donnie's death, the end of the world. And in fact, there is a, uh, an exchange he has with his psychiatrist when, he, when he's under hypnosis and he has a, 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 an hallucination of Frank. And she tells him that if the world, world were to end, Donnie would be just left alone with Frank the Rabbit forever. So what we see here is the two alternatives are placed in front of Donnie, which is either him willing the end of the world, in which case he is left alone with the projection of death forever, or the alternative of him n saving the world by, in a Christ-like manner, bringing his own death into himself and willing his death of integrating these parts of himself, including his mortality, which he can't accept, having to accept them and integrating them into himself. And when he does this, when the film cuts back to him lying in bed on the night of the engine smashing into, the, smashing into his room, when that happens, what we see there is Donnie joyfully accepting things. He laughs. And in fact, there is that line. I can only hope that the answers will come to me in my sleep. I hope that when the world comes to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. This is, and so like, and, and so if we read yeah. the film like that, what we see there is what we see there is sort of like one of like the great truths of our own lives that we do have to accept. I think maybe this is and it's something that like is always difficult and it's a thought that often we first have when we're that age, when we are like a teenager, the fact that one day we're going to die and that's actually real. That's not just like an abstract fact, it's a concrete reality mm -hmm. that one day we are going to smash into the hard limit of our finitude and we will cease to be in the world. In, again, use the Heideggerian terminology, which I'm fond of. Uh, but when we do that truthfully, when we will that, we realise we have nothing to fear. We can simply laugh and roll over comfortably in our sleep. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I have ever heard. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It is a good film, listeners. It is a good yeah. film. And it's a better film without the time travel. Yes. <coughs> Did you call the fucking cops? What did you just say? What the fuck did you just say? I'm savior. So, like, one of the things that is just to kind of throw away stylistic point, but I think it's actually really nice, is um, so you've talked about like kind of the Jungian concept of death, but I mean death. Ex I mean the, the 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 thing he was working from was the idea that this existed as an archetype. And the archetype of death 
plays a very, very interesting thing specifically within a European medieval tradition, although I'm sure it kind of like has similar crossovers with others, but it's this uh, sense that it's like, it's like a kind of harbinger or like the, the whole idea of the memento mori. Uh, very often it's framed in figures who are tapping into a sense of the uncanny. Um, so kind of, you know, the, I mean the uncanny, the fundamental disjuncture between like things that are alive that should be dead, uh, behaving erratically or kind of feeling like they belong to another world, but some for some reason they're here. Um, and also this idea of like embodying it in a person, but in a kind of like a weird sort of trickster figure that just drifts in and out, is transient and drifts in and out of different social modes and professions and statuses and roles and stuff. I mean, you get the kind of like Holbein dance of death, which I'm actually, I'm just gonna take down a copy because I have it as a very, very lovely gift from my squid in America, um, which is the, um, the Holbein thing, which just fe features a lot of kind of like allegorical figures of people being surprised by death in various ways. There's this this manifestation that is, you know, it's it's often presented in a very satirical way, uh, where it's like, oh, here's the astrologer looking at a globe, and, and the skeleton's like, hey, you might want to look down a little bit. Surprise, it's a skull. Or you know, a king just like bestowing benedictions, like, oh wait, no, you in the crowd, you're a skeleton. My mortality, I, I failed to consider. The, but, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, the traditional papal coronation ceremony involved, uh, a, during the, one of the processions, someone's job was to, was to uh, walk in front of the Pope with a staff in which um, um, bundles of flax were burnt, and this was uh, th uh, three times, and each time the uh, servant would sing Sick Transit Gloria Mundi. Yeah. Thus so passes, passes the, the glory, glory of, of the, the world. world. We both are nerds. But um, basically, yeah. So, like, and and I think one of the great other other historical archetypes of this comes from uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I think I mentioned it somewhere on the podcast before. The Pardoner's Tale, uh, which um, the Pardoner is presented as this kind of like allegorical figure of death, who's presented as weirdly femme, which I think you want you will be picking up on again later. But when you mention like the depersonalization, the whole idea of like. Um, it's a figure apart from yourself, but in which one can recognize some reflection of themselves. This exists in a kind of literary tradition. And following on from the Hannibal episode, where I remember a book by Herman Hesse I read over a decade ago and then frantically try and summarize the, the salient points thereupon. Um, it's about someone who gets their own kind of like Tyler Durden type figure. It's this thing called Demian, who um, is this Bildungsroman, which is the kind of German literary tradition of kind of biographical fiction about fictional figures and um, it's about basically this, this intense friendship between these two men and then like it exists to the point of death and they have their kind of weird reflections in one another and I think that has that's something that I want to return to another time to it's just an interesting read in context of um, in context of Donnie Darko but there's also like a lot of things I was talking about are specifically medieval and I think Richard Kelly in fact does a bit of a hat tip to that tradition because Frank, the the human Frank, not the kind of archetype death Frank, is seen um, drawing um, some very, very Holbein-esque looking pseudo-medieval sketches, which involve the bunny rabbit of death Frank there. And it's like, that's, I just think that's really, really cool. And I think that is kind of like a hat tip to the, you know, legitimacy of a Jungian reading as being... Um, if we assume for a moment that the author isn't dead. <laughs> so yeah, but but there is also, yeah, 
I think you're right in saying an inherent queerness to this text. I haven't said that yet. The text being the film. I hadn't said that yet. Saying. <laughs> I hear this, but I understand that's a kind of like an inherent queerness to the text. Oh, listeners, this is where it gets really fun. So, uh, when I was kind of like um, driving ever forwards with this Jungian uh, analysis I was going for, I kind of like hit upon an idea which initially I was kind of going to present sort of as a joke, but, can't, but I eventually managed to convince myself of the truth of this. And I'm very happy that I managed to do this because it is... Um, Oh man, okay, so one of the, uh, along with like notions like the shadow, so like, I, I think, just to give a little bit more background about Jung, Jung wrote extensively about what he describes as archetypes. These are psychological symbols that emerge in the mind, uh, emerge out of the mind, which he believed are uh, universal. They are, they're certain, there are certain, and like the reason why the universals, in his opinion, kind of like altered over the course of his life. At, at some points, he, in his earlier career, he thought this was, they were like always appeared just because of how human beings like physically constituted, but as like time went on, they all get a little bit more like psychic. Um, but um, among these common universal psychological symbols, as well as the shadow, there's also the anima and the animus. And the wild animus, don't one say. <laughs> so, in Jung's opinion, um, every man in the interior, like, repressed quotient of their mind possesses feminine psychological qualities, which he calls the anima. And likewise, every woman possesses uh, masculine psychological qualities, the animus. And Jung did not say trans rights. No, Jung did not say trans rights, <laughs> no. And these uh, archetypes, and these are... The anima and the animus both play a central role in the actual act of the projection of these fantasies because the there's this kind of like this understanding about or almost this understanding about how the world can never quite live up to one's expectations and um, so for example the anima for the man manifests as a can manifest psychologically in dreams uh, and in fantasies as a mothering figure. But what uh, Jung says, and this is the same book I mentioned before, nor is she, the anima figure, a substitute figure for the mother. On the contrary, there is every likelihood that the numinous qualities which make the mother imago so dangerously powerful derive from the collective archetype of the anima, which is, can which is incarnated anew in every male child. Uh, so, and, and going on, just as the mother seems to be the first carrier of the projection-making factor for the son, so is the father for the daughter. Practical experience of these relationships is made up of many individual cases presenting all kinds of variations on the same basic theme. Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> A concise description of them can therefore be no more than schematic. But yes, yeah, so essentially the... Um, for, the, uh, for, for the man, the anima is sort of like the, the desire for the, is the desire for the feminine qualities that are being that are being projected outside of oneself and like uh, and, and this is how you put it. So like the notions of sort of like a world which is compliant, much like a woman, is there for my pleasure, much like a woman, will feed me, clean me. And suck my dick, much like a woman. Uh, Jung does not have did not have progressive feelings about women. We do not and stand Jung on this podcast. Yeah, so I actually I'm going to read an extended passage here just to really like 
emphasize kind of like the bollocks of this like um so this is <laughs> do the bit short, right? right so here's the bit so he's talking about sort of like uh the anima appears sort of like as the eros and the uh the animus appears as the logos but these are kind of like he's saying using these only as kind of like vague sort of like symbolic terms to describe things he doesn't think they actually amount to these things in reality and what he goes on to say here is it that is the synergy of anima and animus gives rise to misunderstandings and annoying interpretations in the family circle and among friends. Oh, sorry. This is because it... Oh, no, sorry, this is the, sorry, the animus <laughs> specifically. So, so yeah, he's talking specifically about the animus here, the, the okay. masculine part of a woman's brain, mind, space. It gives it, the animus, the ma um, gives rise to misunderstandings and annoying interpretations in the family circle and among friends. This is because it consists of opinions instead of reflections, and by opinions I mean a priori assumptions that lay claim to absolute truth. Such assumptions, as everyone knows, can be extremely irritating. I mean, that is annoying, but like... As the animus is partial to argument, he can best be seen at work in disputes where both parties know they are right. Men can argue in a very womanish way too, when they are anima-possessed and have thus been transformed into the animus of their own anima. Okay, which then... <laughs> With them, the question becomes one of personal vanity and touchiness, as if they were females. With women, it is a question of power, whether of truth or justice or some other ism, for the dressmaker and hairdresser have already taken care of their vanity. The father, i.e. the sum of conventional opinions, always plays a great, role in, a great role in female argumentation. No matter how friendly and obliging a woman's eros may be, no logic on earth can shake her if she is, ride, if she is ridden by the animus. Often the man has the feeling, and he is not altogether wrong, and actually saw it just like content warning for the thing that's coming up here, that only seduction or a beating or rape would have, been, would have been the necessary power of persuasion. He is unaware that this highly dramatic situation would instantly come to a banal and unexciting end if he were to quit the field and let a second woman carry on the battle. His wife, for instance, if she herself is not the fiery war horse. This goes on for quite a while. So basically, so like, fuck Jung. And this is the bit where I ruined yeah. Jung's day by fucking queering this shit, right? So what Jung says, what Jung says here is that a hard limit that one reaches in reflecting on the projections of the shadow is the fact that once one passes through the shadow, one reaches the deeper layer of projection, which for the man is the anima and for the woman is the anima. So this always reveals itself in dream work or fantasy and so on as a woman for a man or a man for a woman, a contrasexual figure, as he puts it. But this is where things get very, very interesting in Donnie Darko, dear listener, because <laughs> it stands to reason if Jung is right, the moment in the cinema where Frank reveals who he really is, when he takes off the bunny mask, what Donnie should there see is the deeper layer of the projection-making faculty of his own, of his own self. He should see a contrasexual figure there. And he sees literally a homosexual figure there. He sees that the deeper layer of his projection-making fantastical fantasy, uh, fan, uh, his fa fantastical faculty rather, is a male figure. Specifically, a, a, and a male figure who is kind of femme, honestly. And in fact, Frank the man 
is played by James Duvall, who starred uh, is an actor who starred in Greg Araki's t- uh, the queer director Greg Araki's Teenage Apocalypse trilogy of films, which are part of like um, uh, what, were called, what was called the new wave of queer cinema. In which we need the, to do an episode on. Which we need to do point. an episode on. Uh, Greg Araki is on this work. I really need to get to know better. We also so need to do some Todd Haynes. So there's some very it's, it's very very interesting that this is like this is the actor playing that part, uh, an actor for, who is stars in. Gregor Aki's queer films and and this moment of revelation where we should in Jungian terms be confronted with with uh, with a woman we are confronted with a man and going back further to what I was saying about understanding the film as wish fulfillment on Donnie's part perhaps as dream fulfill wish for the wish fulfillment faculty of a dream if you want to look at it like that from a more Freudian perspective if we look at it as wish fulfillment and if we look at Frank's appearances as intrusions of Donnie's real of his mortality then what if part of the projection part of one of the things he's fleeing from and perhaps the reason why in this fantasy he gets a girlfriend and he gets laid and all of these traditional teenage boy things happen what if Donnie is fleeing from his own homosexuality so what if really instead of saving the world he just wanted to be him and Frank just hanging out forever just hanging out forever basically the weird the angular word signal is Donnie Darker is a queer movie because Donnie Darker is gay yeah that's what we're going for and like I said this is something I started genuinely started off as we go wouldn't it be funny if I could somewhat like psychoanalyze postgraduate student won't stop queering things and then I am actually genuinely convinced no it's the the, yeah this is the secret cipher Donnie Darko is a queer movie Donnie is Donnie is a closeted gay guy and part of this this film is him it, it, it is it is this fantastical acting out of the life that he wants and the understanding that that life would be a lie and there's a deeper desire that he is hidden from himself and projected outside of himself but actually what it really is is he want to just like hang out with um sis's hot boyfriend because actually he 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 he, he want he want to be the boyfriend of, of sis's hot boyfriend and just mm. have a nice old nice old time making spooky halloween masks going to parties listening to Echo and the Bunny Man and Joy Division. Yeah. And just very, 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 very wholesome. Solid. And I kind of had a couple of points I wanted to kind of add on to that just in terms of, like, we're going for, like, the psychoanalytic angle. And this more pertains to Freud. And I wanted to just generally think about um, the idea of this uh, film in relation to the death drive and specifically in relation to queerness. And also just, like, kind of one of the things that... Like, you know, and the combination of those two points, the idea of queerness and the death drive. And I didn't really have, like, a central thesis here I wanted to present, but there are a bunch of things that kind of come to mind very strongly when approaching kind of the concept of the death drive, which I kind of familiarised myself with in preparation for this podcast recording. Uh, So one of the things is, I mean, I don't think we really need to dwell too much on, like, defining the death drive. It's just that there's a sense that, like, um, well, when Freud wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he was moving beyond the pleasure principle, the idea that um, humanity, the human brain, is kind of like a simple thing that develops complex processes and systems around itself to... Um, fulfill a quite basic subconscious desire to move towards pleasure and his um, beyond the pleasure principle is a dissection of this fact and acknowledgement that that is too simple and that there is in fact more going on and the idea and one of the things he raises in this point is that pleasure and unpleasure in the realms of the once we get beneath the rational kind of have a aesthetic indistinguishability 
Uh, and that there's this sense that, but there's a sense that kind of like there is a necessary degree of just stimulation of any sort that, well, one of the things he puts forward is first the idea that it's like there is a certain just quota of stimulation of any sort that the mind requires in order to kind of function, but then he goes a little deeper and actually says, no, there is actually a fun an active functioning balancing effect that draws in both pleasure and unpleasure to retain um, equilibrium to retain yeah. a degree of equilibrium and this is where the idea of masochism comes in the idea that um, that um, the, the the conscious mind will act in ways kind of actively deceiving itself and willfully deceiving itself to um, to achieve states of unpleasure because it has a necessary need for them. I mean, one. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. So if if I could define um, uh, things a little bit further, we're not going, we're not going to bog down to, into details, but just for clarity. So like one and like the key one of the key forces that he's trying to articulate in this essay is the notion that alongside what he comes to call uh, eros or life instincts, um, there's also a principle which is a motivating principle which is genuinely distinct from the pleasure principle which is uh, uh, the death instincts mm. which are which is um um because like what you were describing just then about sort of like the, like the masochistic need for unpleasure in order to sort of mm. maintain a certain amount of equilibrium <laughs> because the ego finds disturbances of the equilibrium always kind of disturbing even mm -hmm. if it's a rival of pleasure the death instinct operates completely independently of that and is a desire to return to a simpler form of being and then and, that, and i think it's really and i think it's interesting that we've been talking about, a lot about nostalgia in this because nostalgia is arguably perhaps a manifestation of the desire to go backwards into a time where things are simple like yeah. just like like Regan manifests yeah, sort of like yeah. a desire we want to go back to something simple we need to we need those we need there's an, an instinct to return to a time where it feels like things are more primitive and can be dealt with in the way and the, but of course the thing is the reason it's called the death instinct is because the ultimate re re uh, return to the simp a simpler state of being is the return from being organic to inorganic to, mm. to death to yeah, the desire. <laughs> I mean, there are two is... wolves inside you. One wants to bone, the other just desperately wishes it could die. Yeah, and um, I mean, this is where I think we're probably going to be talking about this with a particular guests we plan to get on um, about the drive to all complexity and the drive to all simplicity. But that's tipping our hat a little bit too much. But you'll know soon enough as, as who who that will yeah. be. <laughs> but basically, um, so. I just get, I guess, just like returning to that first point we made after the synopsis about like, is this a good film? This is a great film. Are we just embarrassed about the people we were? Specifically, are we embarrassed about the realization of our own death drive? Like, d reader, listener, just like kind of friend, friend, have whomst amongst us has not wanted very badly at some point in their lives to get to voluntarily submit themselves to get murked by a jet engine in a way that wouldn't be your fault, that wouldn't be suicide, <laughs> that would just be a kind of like a laying down of one's life in a, in a kind of, you know, in a, it, towards a greater ideal or a necessary thing of the universe and to be loved for that reason or kind of, or feel love or experience love and be able to kind of see what the world would be like before and after and without and within that fact. And that's a heavy thing to think about, but that's a heavy thing we all kind of deal with as teenagers. And then there is a certain degree of t guilt attached to that notion, which one shouldn't really feel and doesn't necessarily always feel when one breaks it down in analytic terms. But I think that's why a lot of people 
are really showing a lot about themselves when they trash this movie, which is great. I think we're all at the point of agreeing here, and it's great for these particular reasons. But, yeah, I, I also had some just general points about, like, kind of teenage... Because this is a teenage movie. This extremely, profoundly, essentially teenage movie. And I think um, there is something very specific about kind of teenagehood and that awareness... Well, the kind of mounting awareness of death and the death drive being a particular presence in that. And also, also, you know, this is this, the, the point at which this is so formative that it becomes a site of failed mourning, mostly out of embarrassment, that um, people feel the need to return to. And it's at this point, I will point out that Richard Kelly was born in 1975. He would have been 13 years old when this film came out. Oh, no, when... What? When this film is set, dear God, the man's a prodigy. <laughs> yeah, he made this at thirteen. He's extremely talented, sort of thirteen-year-old boy just bossing around all the actors. I mean, and it working. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So that that's basically that's. It. I know I'm not trying to do a retroactive psychoanalysis on Richard Kelly, but I think you know that that's some. I think like a lot of the things, even though we're not talking about them as. These are deliberate kind of like mechanisms set in place and perfected by Richard Kelly. I think it's just as with the the 1980s, as with teenagehood, these things just warrant this particular kind of reasoning and go into particular depths. And that's that's a very important thing to bear in mind with what I'm going to be talking about next. But I just wanted to talk about kind of so teenageness. I think at this point I'm going to call back to another film we talked about earlier. It follows. That film, there's a very potent way in which it uses the 1980s aesthetics because it's drawing on a time that feels haunted to us because it's like, it's kind of ambiguity, ambiguously a bit 80s, a bit 90s, but it's got, one of the things they point out is like, these are all, all the protagonists are um, young people on the crest of adulthood coming into contact with the idea of death for the first time and it's it's kind of they use devices which are as on those as Donnie Darko and like the bit where they read like the destructors like English classes being metaphors for potent um like life-affirming moments of clarification which is a huge trope in teen films going back to to Nightmare on Elm Street you know that oh my god Nightmare on Elm Street um there is a scene in which um you can tell they've like lapsed into horror mode and that Freddy Krueger is out on the spoon because it's it's a very powerful scene in fact where they're in a classroom they're talking about Hamlet and then suddenly everything slows down and one of the kids is reading a quote and it f slows down to a stop on the point at which the guy is saying were it not that I have bad dreams which is from <laughs> one of the soliloquies in Hamlet uh, not to tip no. a hat too strongly there, but basically... Oh, is, 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 it, is that from... That's from Romeo and Juliet. No, that's from... There is a... Uh, to oh, sleep. For chance to dream. No, so if, like, if I could... Were it not that I have it? I had bad dreams. Who can Google it first? That... Well, you're going to Google it. Hamlet, were it not that I have bad dreams? That's a suggested search. Uh, okay. Oh, God. Uh... I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad oh. dreams. Oh yeah, you're quite right. What was I thinking? What were you thinking? Anyway. Oh, I was thinking of like King Mab, Queen Mab flying around in the like walnut shell. I mean, they do mention a nut there. That's interesting. But yeah, anyway. so they just have the dot 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 I drew there, but so like, ah, oh, but nuts, shells. Yeah. 
Basically, I'm sorry. I think um, I think there is just like an inherent connection between you just, kind of this, you... this particular understanding of the Death Drive and what? So do you just want to like do that bit again about that unnecessary like digression? Like, no, I think that's fine. I think this is gonna all stay in. Oh. Um, or you know, okay, I'm just gonna read the line. Um, oh God, oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. Excellent scene from Nightmare on Arm Street and excellent tie-in with uh, the general trend of using um, using uh, English classes as a uh, thematic um, explanatory thing in teen films dealing with ideas of death as they do in It Follows and as they do in Donnie Darko. Or like death in the fullness, death and the sense of death upon witnessing the fullness of life which is that scene they describe in the destruction. There would be headlines in the papers. Even the grown-up gangs who ran the betting at the all-in wrestling and the Barrow Boys would hear with respect of how old Misery's house had been destroyed. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons, now in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. But basically... I bring up the death drive in this context of teen films and queerness specifically because you know I think we're I think we're both now approaching this as a queer film. Um, one of the things that when I was reading about, well, I, I, I consulted a book by a person called Edelman. I've forgotten their first name. I believe it's Thomas or Patrick. I'm just gonna wait. Okay, it's by a writer called Lee Edelman, um, and it's called No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive. And it's, I believe it's from the 90s, but it was very pertinent to this, this article, or this, uh, this piece. But um, one of the things, the main way it contextualizes the, the connection between the death drive and um, queerness in the first chapter is by identifying the kind of political status of queerness in the film, or in, in culture at the time, and this is the 1990s, starts to be talking about the Clinton era, but <clears throat> it's very much tied to the idea of reproductive futurity, that there was this kind of zero-sum game that existed in political rhetoric where there's a sense of doing it for the children, and he uses a particular speech, I think, given in context of, um, probably in context of like AIDS epidemic, you know, the AIDS, HIV uh, crisis, um, that um, Clinton made some remarks that's like, we're, we're doing this for the children, what side are you on? Uh, there's this whole idea that children were a permanent and a permanent and ever effective political tool because they, children are the future. Like, they, they represent the future. And would they, somebody please think of the children? Would somebody please think of the children? And the this kind of like flags up one it flags up the um the status of like the outsider of the queerness of, of the queer as outsider because they in being queer have cut themselves off from their own reproductive futurity and there's an interesting thing he, having done yeah so. yeah uh there's an interesting thing he talks about a film um where it's like i can't remember what it's called it's like about it's, it's like there's I'm just gonna find the. Oh, I, don't know, I don't know what it is, but like, he talks about a film where like, it talks about a, a queer character dying of AIDS, and like, I think the ending of the film just focuses on them as a child, and it's like, oh, okay, this is the future they could have had, they could have like that they've now stepped out of, which is really weird. But but basically, the reason why um, this idea of reproductive futurity connected to 
uh, political discourse comes up in the context of Donnie Darko is because even though, as, as we've discussed, he's kind of effectively quite a queer character, he, for a boy of like 17, 16, is preternaturally, like uncommonly preoccupied with children and um, parenthood and setting up a life. You know, that's the... F and this is weirdly where what being around Gretchen brings out in him. It brings out a very almost kind of like forced, a very compulsive mm. way mm. of talking about children and innocence. There's that, and, uh, yeah, there's the, uh, the uh, you know, there's weird science idea yeah. of like brainwashing goggles for children so they which only is, have happy memories. To which it. is really weird. Which it's, is a weird thing to come out with and is kind of out of character but makes sense in that context of like he's projecting... He's kind of distancing his own queerness or using or, you know, existing as a queer person by dis dissociating on or you know, dis depersonalizing himself onto another figure to engage in a form of reproductive futurity with them, which then has a strange kind of parallel with their own lack of futurity because they're about to um, spiral out the the end loop of the pencil sharpener of history that's and many, just bearing down upon them. And it's interesting that so because like his teacher challenges um uh, them about that saying but what have did it occur to you that maybe children they maybe they need to sleep maybe they don't maybe and and in some yeah, way and maybe they this need is, that unpleasure and maybe that yeah and maybe this is kind of like him falling into the same trap as the uh the snake oil that Cunningham is peddling or sort of like oh it's actually very very simple it's just about sort of like um a, bi a binary between fear and love and like he's trying to do like doing a similar kind of thing or saying sort of like oh but if we could just have good memories then everything will be fine mm. and again this is like we like what like we've been saying, sort of like uh, Frank being the projection of the unacceptable portions of his own self, mm. having to be integrated in integrating the evil. And in fact, this is something that Jung Jung says in his archetype analysis of Christ as an archetypal figure. He states that the deficiency of Christ as an archetypal figure in psychological terms is because there's no darkness in him, which is what because he is a perfect, he's the perfect man. The per, uh, while in which psychologically archetypally has to imply the existence of antichrist in a way that like doesn't actually exist in like formal theological tradition like this isn't what the figure of like antichrist is of like this equal opposite number of jesus that that um but psychologically jung suggests that we have to have a figure like that in order to cope in order to have somewhere to push that that reality of mm. ourselves so we can as uh, something that we can think about while what we need and yeah him saying that sort of like the real like health is sort of like the integrate like a, a fully integrated self we can like combine both in this sort of like gnostic yeah, heresy equilibrium of pleasure and unpleasure mm. but yeah but like that's the thing so like that scene going back to that scene in the in the assembly hall where he's doing the big shout down of jim cunningham and indeed his entire like personal vendetta against Jim Cunningham. It's like the way it's presented, it's like it's something that's very, very relatable to a kind of rebellious teenager of like, oh shit, yeah, let's fuck up the guy, let's humiliate him in front of a crowd of people, let's get all righteous in a in a really sadistic way that again is recalling another Steppenwolf uh, another Herman Hess novel that I really should have read more to contextualize this but like the idea of the steppenwolf the um the howling of the steppenwolf it makes it irresistible for a person of sufficient intelligence not to fucking sink their teeth into folly wherever they see it um even if it damages their status socially um but that's kind of like that seems to be at work in donnie darko but 
when it comes down to it, it's like, he's not just a cynical, like, um, he's not just in it for, like, an, a, a spiteful kick. He is in it because he's kind of casting himself as, like, a project, as a, as a protector of children and a protector of innocence. And this is how it actually manifests because he doesn't even know, or, you know, maybe he knows at the time, but is concealing it from himself. But it's like, he's attacking this guy because he's a pedophile and he's gonna, um, and he's, you know, he's gonna ruin the lives of children and, and destroy the innocence that Donnie is so keen to protect. And that seems to be the drive underneath the kind of self-justifying sadism of the initial act. It reminds me almost of um, Catcher in the Rye. I was just thinking Catcher in the Rye, yeah. His like, like his fantasy of sort of like being someone who could save children from... Oh, like, yeah, is, is I that think that's definitely a Catcher in the Rye. Like, I'm yeah. going to go as far as to say that this is a Catcher in the Rye reference. I was mm. literally just about to bring that up, yeah. Yeah. sincere here um but you know i think there's something going on which i'm probably gonna have to sum up quite succinctly because i imagine we're already on hour two yep yes. hour 212 i mean that's like still still probably gonna come in under time with in relation to the fucking hannibal episode but okay um so we've been talking about archetypes a lot we've been talking about fictional figures um there is a certain figure from literary history who doesn't get explicitly mentioned in the film but has a certain parallel because um, I mean we're talking about a film in which um, there is a kind of outsider figure he is the son of a mm, some degree noble family he 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 has encounters with a ghost and he is um, he is given instructions by a ghost which he follows but reluctantly and ever dealing with the struggle of the legitimacy of these um of you know the validity of these requests and and the 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 anxiety of to whether he's doing the right thing and meanwhile a certain degree of temporal injunction is happening it's almost as if um the time is out of joint oh cursed spite that ever i brackets Donnie Darko was born to set it right um, because something is very very rotten in the state of Middlesex High School I'm going to be talking about Hamlet <laughs> it's like it's Hamlet this it's is happening. fucking Hamlet okay but specifically haunted Hamlet post structuralist haunted <laughs> Hamlet end of history Hamlet gay Hamlet gay Hamlet we're talking about Danny Darko. Okay, I'm just gonna. There is a quote I'm gonna bring up from. Uh, there is a certain po uh, political writer who, uh, a poet called Valerie, who um, Dara discusses, who, who came out with a uh, a very interesting text called um, "Crisis of the Spirit" and talking about Marx and Hamlet, and he uses the term. He's he is quoted as saying Shakespeare. Qui genui Marx, qui genui Valerie. Um, and in fact, there's variations on that. Kant, qui genui Hegel, qui genui Marx, qui genui dot dot dot. Um, basically, there is a distinct line of metaphor and cognitive like treatment and ideology that stems from Shakespeare into Derrida 
and comes up and is like a central figure indeed a key theme in that essay that was the zero hour you know ground zero of hauntology which was Derrida's uh Spectres of Marx well it's from from the collection Derrida's Spectres of Marx but specifically Injunctions of Marx and basically so Derrida uses in explaining his concept of hauntology and this idea of like um, the the lost future and um, and the you know the the, the kind of spectral half existence of of, um, of communism in as a extended tool for um, articulating that he uses the text of Hamlet uh, and I've got like a number of quotes because this is going to be a um, it's going to be a lengthy thing, but there are key, there are certain, so I'm just going to have to do a bit of a breakdown, but yeah, so the reason why he uses Hamlet is because uh, he, he's, he uses Hamlet as a tool for identifying the uniqueness of Marx as a philosophical thinker, because one of the key things about the 90s which tried to um, pin down Marx to history, and in order to kind of like consign him to the dustbin of history, was this idea that we could treat Marx like we would treat any other thinker and not someone who had a who was like who had a unique role in shaping intellectual thought of the subsequent two centuries and the point that he um, he brings up is this idea that Marx can't be thought of in these same times in these same terms because he has a unique appre appreciation of time specifically the injunction of time or specifically philosophy and politics and the understanding of humanity in relation to history and he uses um, he uses Hamlet and specifically Marx's own writings on Hamlet as a means of dissecting exactly how this functions um, by basically identifying the uniqueness of Marx with the uniqueness of Hamlet um, and so this this breaks down into a number of particular ideas. One is this idea of European destiny, because um, one of the things he actually talks about in the context of, um, of Spectres of Marx is this idea that um, hauntology, hauntology, so like the spectre of a lost future, um, or indeed just this general spirit of a, of a spectre existing outside of time, it's, it taps into what we describe as the kind of Fischerian eerie in that it's the something that's present when it should be absent or kind of or it's kind of interaction between presence and absence creates a certain discomfort. Uh, I, the quote I'm going to bring up here is um, okay so untimely it does not come to it does not happen to it does not befall one day Europe as if the latter at a certain moment of its history had begun to suffer from a certain evil to let itself be inhabited in its inside that is haunted by a foreign guest. Not that the guest is any less a stranger for having always occupied the domesticity of Europe. Um, and what he's talking about there, this guest, is this phantom of an idea of a united European project. And he, he, he later in that passage actually says, um, the experience of the spectre, that is how Marx along with Engels would have thought, would have also thought, described or diagnosed a certain dramaturgy of modern Europe notably that of its great unifying projects, like the European Union, like um, just the idea of like the Holy Empire or Christendom, and to some extent like, I mean, 
he's setting up here for a comparison with both the Soviet Union and Reagan's America, both great unifying projects and greatly flawed, but born out of a sense that they kind of always had to happen. Um, and that kind of like that sense of the always already is, or the always already is, is kind of present in in hauntology. Or it's it's the driving force that cr that makes ghosts and spectres so difficult to put to bed. That idea of you know, European destiny and the reason why Hamlet. I mean. Hamlet becomes the perfect vehicle. Well, but Hamlet, Hamlet was like the perfect vehicle for so many things, but Hamlet becomes the perfect vehicle for presenting this kind of thought because it presents us with a figure who is in a unique position, who like Marx, I guess is what he's building up to, is in a unique position to, um, to understand exactly what's going on and to address the injunction that has been reached because um because you know the thing about hamlet i mean um he well derrida actually brings up a lengthy excerpt from that french writer again valerie who um about the idea of the european hamlet um i'm just gonna read a little bit of this but um but like now on an immense terrace of Elsinore, which stretches from Basel to Cologne, that touches on the sands of Neuport and the lowlands of the Somme, the chalky earth of Champagne, the granite earth of Alsace, the European Hamlet looks at thousands of spectres. But he is an intellectual Hamlet. He meditates on life and deaths and truths. His ghosts are all the objects of our controversies. His remorse is all the titles of our glory. If he seizes a skull, it is an illustrious skull. Whose was it? It was one Leonardo. And this other skull is that of Leibniz, who dreamed of a universal peace. And this one was Kant, who generated Hegel, who generated Marx, who generated Hamlet, does not know what to do with these skulls, but he abandons them, and he will cease to be himself. That is, I mean, that is a potent thing, but that is not just a kind of, like, elaboration or using Hamlet as a tool there. That idea of compounding time and space is very much present in um, in Hamlet the text. And I want to start, I do want to, I mean, the ultimate point we're building up to is Hamlet and time, but the idea of Hamlet and space is almost as integral because Hamlet exists. Um, so we get, even though it's all set in and around the big castle of Elsinore, what we get is a very elaborate geography built up of Europe. He has come from studying in Germany. There's mentions of wars with Norway. Uh, in the context of the wars with Norway, there's also mentions of wars with Poland. Um, there is talk about sending Hamlet to England. Um, it's very much this great international thing, and like specifically Northern Europeans, about the Black Sea, and a lot of it is contextualized in a very pro Protestant sense of things. I know it's. I know it's hammering with rain but I, I don't I think people will be able to hear me and I think it's even adding to my point just make sure you're speaking I'm just gonna make towards the sure mic. I'm speaking to the mic so I'm the loudest thing in this room um, but basically um, yeah it's like Hamlet itself stands as this nutshell of great unrealized European projects that can never quite be put to bed um, and it's in the sense that then time also enters a um a degree of, of of breaking because a lot of the discussion takes place in context of the um, particular, specifically the battlement scene where um, Hamlet is. I could probably redo this point if it if it turns up this 
audio is unusable, but I think it's going to be fine. Uh, basically, the battlement scene where Hamlet is alerted to the appearance of the ghosts by Horatio and Marcellus. And um, there's two very specific uh, points to bring up in context of this. One is um, what locates Hamlet in this, because... Um, so, Ham I mentioned before, you know, the the analogy between the ghost of old Hamlet, the father of Hamlet who was murdered, who um, must, who is now compelling his son to avenge his death. Um, that is, I mean, that's a very kind of easy direct comparison. Just wait a minute. I'm just going to wait a minute for <laughs> Hale to die down. Do you reckon that's settled enough? I'm going to keep going. Okay, so basically, we get a very kind of, we get a framework for a very direct comparison with Hamlet in that he is uh, tortured by the idea that what he may be doing in the service of this ghost is, uh, is unjust or is wrong and is a crime and he's, he's, it's, a da it's in fact a damned spirit that is guiding him and is constantly beset by uncertainty in his search for, his search to establish the truth of the matter. Um, and that's actually a certain parallel that, actually, I'm just going to bring in this parallel. So that establishment of truth, um, in just like talking about, we're talking about Hamlet and we're just erasing Derrida from the equation for the moment or suspending that. Um, this search for truth is uh, one that is, has, I think, is so overt that I think uh, Richard Kelly was in fact making a, a thing to it because if you think if you're you know literature grads casting your mind back to the last time you read Hamlet um how does he how does um Hamlet become fixed in his motion towards his final act um he sets up a play there is the line the plays the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king I mean yeah in the context you know that line you know what happens in the context of that line okay if we replace play with talent show and King with uh, local author slash pedo, then we get a near perfect synthesis. And that is what sets his mind, in, you know, that's what convinces him of the veracity of Frank's claims because it turns out, oh no, just as uh, Claudius is um, shown to be uh, unsettled by the simulation of his own crimes repeated back to him in the context of the play, so is um, the house fire that chews up the entire house except for the secret room with the kitty porn dungeon in Richard Cunningham's house that sees him getting dragged out by the cops um, to the delight of Maggie Gyllenhaal. That's the capturing of the conscience and that proves the ghost right and then that, that kind of sends both of these dramaturgies towards their conclusions. But, um, but then coming back to Derrida, there is a there is a kind of comparison, a formal comparison, which um, comes through this thing that um, Derrida identifies as the visor effect. The fact that um, both of these ghosts show up with their faces covered, but through their kind of disguise, they are in, they hold within them a kind of inherent power. And I guess this is kind of t crosses over to some extent with the. Um, with the, what you were talking about with um, kind of death and the figure of power in a Jungian sense 
But uh, there's a quote that comes up in Derrida that I want to bring in here, which I think just to articulate that point. Um, it's about the, the visor effect. So, um, yeah, the, um, this spectral someone other looks at us. We feel ourselves being looked at by it outside of any synchrony, even before and beyond any look on our part, according to an absolute anteriority, which may be on the order of generation or more than one generation, an asymmetry, according to an absolutely unmasterable disproportion, that they can see, you know, that they, they can see us and speak to us, but we can't see them. And whether we can speak to them is another matter. But here, anachrony makes law. To feel ourselves seen by a look which it will always be impossible to cross. That is, that is the visor effect on the basis of which we inherit from the law. And so it's basically they hold in themselves this certain degree of power because of this ambiguity. And this is what, like, uh, this is what Horatio flagged... Well, this is what Marcellus actually initially flags up to Horatio because he says... Horatio, you're a scholar, speak to it, as if, and that's a kind of joke, because it's like, there's the absurdity of speaking to a ghost, because it's a haunted thing, it exists outside of time, it communicates one way, you can't hold counsel with a ghost as if this is some sort of school, uh, or academy, just being a scholar isn't enough, and that's why Horatio, uh, that, that's why, you know, Horatio is the secondary figure to Hamlet, because there is more in Heaven and Earth than in Horatio's philosophy. And that's why Hamlet is given this kind of primacy, because he is a figure who can see outside of time, and he is the only one who is recognised as ha being sufficiently a visionary uh, and possessing an inherited right to communicate with the ghost in a reciprocal way, and which is why the king raises the visor to him, and I believe to him alone, and that's why he's kind of isolated in his task in this in this moment and again like um frank like the king is the, the ghost of the king is the arrival of the real again here yeah. so like the actual truth of the state is murder as a murder yeah. is, is murder and incest yeah ultimately and and you know it's I, literally like incest if we like bring it back to its kind of more general understanding which it would have covered at the time which is um kind of just sexual sexual grave impropriety like or you know just like wrong, sinful, fundamentally incorrect sexual practices, be they with siblings or be they with minors. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so yeah, and yeah, yes. Yeah. So, and, and again, this kind of brings us all the way back to our initial, uh, to uh, our initial points about the hauntological <clears throat> is, is, is the arrival of history, is the arrival yeah. of the reality, or the, the actual, the underlying reality of things, breaking through the, the spell, breaking through the fantastical spell of ideology. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm showing us the true face of things, um, whether, it, whether it be our queerness, whether it be uh, that the power of state is the power of violence. Yeah, and this is kind of, um, and this is where we get into the discussion of time, uh, and specifically in its context of justice, that um, there's this idea that, well, actually two points actually arising from the idea of the costume. One is that of course, if we're looking as uh, as Frank as the Archean, uh, the the Jungian archetype of death, there is no greater king than death, and so he's arrayed in the um, he's arrayed in the in the garments of death to indicate his absolute mastery. The other thing is uh, I mentioned the other thing about the inherited, the order of things being a manner of inheritance. One of the lines that we actually get from Frank is um, where he talks about like. He says, like, Frank, that's a funny name. 
what does it mean? And he was like, it was my father's name and my father's before me. This kind of like stretching out of just non-human, just kind of like depersonalized political entities. And I mean, that's that's a thing, a big trend in kingship and in how we think about especially early modern concepts of kingship. There's two very good books. One by Ernst Kantorovich, which is called The King's Two Bodies, which focuses a lot on Shakespeare. And the other one is The Queen's Two Bodies, which focuses exclusively on Elizabeth I. I can't remember who wrote The Queen's Two Bodies, but I will link it. And I will start doing the links again, by the way. Uh, but, um, but this idea that, like, kind of the body politic being divorced from the body natural and that stepping outside of time. So we have the crown being passed down as this kind of thing that is uh, a human entity, but it's the political part of that human entity abstracted. And that's what we see represented in the... Um, in the body of the king. And also one of the things that he points out, that Derrida points out, I think he's actually possibly riffing on Valerie at this point as well, or someone else maybe, but um, the idea that it's like, it's a visor and not a mask. So you can take off, if you take off a mask, you've removed a mask, you've revealed an identity. If you lift a visor, you're still wearing the helmet and the helmet bears the crown. And it's also the helmet is on the coat of arms. The helmet is the thing of power and it does not lose that power by revealing the face beneath the visor. Um, but what this co- where this comes back to Derrida and to hauntology and the Soviet Union, the great unifying um, projects of America and Europe, is um, the other great thing that is brought up in this is justice. This idea of something that is just or unjust, or in this case, something so unjust, so rotten, so decadent and corrupt that it breaks the natural order of things so badly that it disrupts time and we emerge into a state where time is out of joint and must be set right. And in this case, it is through murder of literally everyone in the play. Inadvertently or deliberately, literally everyone gets poisoned to fuck and then one guy comes in at the end and he's like, Jesus Christ, what's all this then? What's all this then? What kind of crazy party did I miss? But in the case of Donnie Darko, it's like, it's unjust that the paedophile was unpunished, uh, although he kind of un-unpunishes him at the end, although we see that he is in fact suffering from severe guilt, but it's even more unjust that the innocent heteronormative futurity embodied in Gretchen is killed, and she's already suffered so much, because, um, you know, the whole background with the father thing, but yeah, so basically time, it must be put back into joint, and that is, that is my big kind of looming Hamlet Derrida, Donnie Darko, crossover thesis. Um, the only There's... other side point I wanted to bring in was the fact about, like, his two idiot mates are, like, definitely either... Um, Rosencrantz Marcell- and Guildenstern. Well, either Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or Horatio and Marcellus, and I'm actually leaning towards Horatio and Marcellus. You know, that bit where it's like... <laughs> the fucking... I just want to... I'm just... I think we all need a bit of a breather after that. I certainly fucking do, because, like, I... I Un- unambiguous, un- un- um, unremarkable point, un- uncontroversial point. Derrida is difficult, and I've been. Oh, he be he he hard. Yeah, and so you know, bit of a breather. I'm just gonna play the fun bit where he does. I'm gonna play the the Smurf monologue because it's so funny. Beer and pussy. That's all I need. But we gotta find ourselves a Smurfette. Smurfette. Mm-hmm. 
not some like tight ass middle sex chick, you know? Like this cute little blonde that'll get down and dirty with the guys. Like Smurfette does. Smurfette doesn't fuck. That's bullshit. Smurfette fucks all the other Smurfs. Why do you think Papa Smurf made her? Because all the other Smurfs were getting too horny. No, 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 not Vanity. I heard he was a homosexual. Okay, well, you know what? Then she fucks them while Vanity watches, okay? Well, what about Papa Smurf? I mean, he must get into the action. Yeah, what he does, he films the gangbang. Later on, he beats off to the tape. First of all, Papa Smurf didn't create Smurfette. Gargamel did. She was sent in as Gargamel's evil spy with the intention of destroying the Smurf village, but the overwhelming goodness of the Smurf way of life transformed her. And as for the whole gangbang scenario, <laughs> I, it just couldn't happen. Smurfs are asexual. They, they don't even have reproductive organs under those little white pants. This was so illogical, you know, about being a Smurf. You know, what's the point of living if you don't have a dick? Damn it, Donnie. Why, why do you gotta get so smart on us? Uh, I will also point out that with the Smurf monologue, uh, Donnie's rage is, like, brought to the surface by the discussion of the possibility that Vanity Smurf is gay. And this is what oh. triggers him to say, no! No, no oh, way! They fuck. And almost, yeah. This is innocent. Oh, shit, yeah! Uh, but, and, uh, but, but, of course, Lee, but he goes through this, concluding with the statement, but what's the point of living without a dick? Oh, wait. Oh. oh. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, um, so, I think we've spun our wheels pretty significantly on Hamlet. I think, I think, and, and Donnie Darko, in fact, but I think we need to, I ne we do need to talk about the stylistics elements of it. You know, just because it warrants discussion. I think, we've, I think we've done enough theory. Let's just have, let's just have fun with this. Like, so, it's a beautiful film. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the whole idea of, like, kind of its 80s-ness, um, I think it was Nick who mentioned this to me, right, as you said earlier, Richard Cunningham, Richard Kurt, Richard Kelly. Richard Kelly, Richard Curtis, uh, wanted to um, set, make it more overtly 80s, and then the studio was like, no, nah, mate, 90s, 90s Gen X aesthetics is way cooler. But the soundtrack um, dates it interestingly. Um, one thing, actually, I think is um, important to point out is, with the exception of the church, who do the Under the Milky Way Tonight song, um, Every single band is um, British, including Ooh. Echo and the Bunnymen. And also, even though we're not talking about the director's cut, um, In Excess are Australian. Um, rip Michael Hutchins, you fucking ledge. You're amazing. There's so much of the In Excess back catalogue that people don't really even investigate nearly enough because, um, because you know, like, everyone's so, so into their hits. But they had other hits, dear God. But, oh yeah, um, but... One 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 fun one fun bit is uh so bit a bit of a trivia, you know how we were talking earlier about how they they switched out the Killing Moon for uh no um for for the song oh, I can't remember what the song is called the NXS track that they uh, play over the intro. It is. It's a good track. It's just not the Killing Moon. It... Oh, hold on, I find out. It's um 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 um. Hold on, I close I closed the tab. Hold on. It mm. is. 
for the director's cut, Kelly was able to gain the rights to use Never Tear Us Apart. Uh, yeah, wait, cause... no, I've got that written down, but I, I got it mixed up because they also used the song Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division which later on. a different song. But which, in that scene, that's where they've moved, where in the latter part of the film they moved the Killing Moon on the director's so, cut. Kelly had originally wanted to use the songs Never Tear Us Apart by NXS and West End Girls by Pet Shop Boys during uh, the opening I mean, scene. that's a banger, but that's stupid. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's really dumb. That's a dumb track. It's a uh, classic, but it is dumb. Listeners, uh recut the movie with like the worst possible song this could have begun with um you can't do um smash mouth because that's obvious <laughs> actually i do that i want to see that uh, yeah i want to see all of this but yeah um one of the things actually i wanted to point out is like every single oh, song oh, sorry it- that would work so well just like him cycling down with like hey so, now you're, you're a rock nice. star and so some Buddy, let's tell me the. Well, anyway, uh, I'm but yeah, this no. Film with bit the of, of the Iron Man song. Bit, bit of, bit of. Oh my god. Okay, bit of, bit of history. Oh my god, this could be like a whole thing of like, like the um, the project. What was that thing? Um, the. Oh, link to it. The the thing, duh, the Walk of Life project, where you end every film with the Walk of Life, like the Matrix. He puts on the glasses, flies into the sky. So other other musical observations though, like please do that though. That sounds so fun. Every every track to the intro of Donnie Darko. But <laughs> one thing I was gonna say is um, the th- every single song could be just replaced with um, with, with fucking with um, Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears, and it would work. But the other thing, bit of bit of musical history. Um, when Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunnymen learned about. Um, the moving of the song from the first scene to a scene towards the end, he described uh, Richard Kelly as a knobhead. Um, <laughs> other other stylistic elements which I want to bring in is um, there's a there's a definite nod to Tim Burton. I think specific. I mean, in the kind of like witchy aesthetics of it, but also you know there's sometimes witchy aesthetics of it. But also specifically in the way that the jet engine falling out of space, there's that kind of dreamlike slow motion, hyper real kind of nearly black and white quality to it, which I think is a definite nod to Tim Burton when Tim Burton was good, or at least when we weren't fucking sick of his one thing that he does. Um, um, another thing I want to say in terms of, like, the performances are, like, consistently excellent in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fucking lately. Jake Gyllenhaal was, like, 17 or 18 when they made this movie. He's really good. Like, um, he has, like, he brings a lot of physicality to the role. Which, uh, like, he walks with, um, like, a slight hunch for a lot yeah. of it. Can you, because, you know, he's not quite used to being as tall as he is now. Yeah. Because he's, <laughs> like, meant to be 15 in the mm. film and stuff. And the scene where he and uh, his mum, who's played by um, fucking um, uh, Mary McDonnell um, of Battlestar Galactica oh, fame. Hey. There's a wonderful exchange where he's uh, where um, they're talking about his mental health. How's it feel to have a wacko for a son? It feels wonderful. Yeah, where and it's that bit's just, I think, genuinely extremely touching. I think that she, I think Mary McDonald is probably the best thing in the movie, really? which isn't to say that I, I think the other performances aren't good because I, I don't think that. I think all the performances are consistently excellent. I just think she's really good in uh-huh. this. Um, she should be in more things. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I guess um, the only other stylistic point I wanted to bring in 
Oh, I also want to point out um, when we were watching <laughs> this film, spinning our wheels a little bit. When we were watching this film a couple of a couple of months ago, you might have seen this on Twitter actually. Like it was about like eleven o'clock at night. And I got an email and I was uh, uh, through with my phone. And I checked it and it's from like like at work we got bored once and like signed up on a horoscope app was, thing um, and yeah. I got an email from them which just said nothing is what's that? It was something nothing like, is impossible. It's like nothing's impossible until anything, everything's impossible until it isn't or something like that with a countdown just like a spin it, and it was like I, it was just after the bit in the movie where like he gets the countdown to the apocalypse from Frank I was like okay this oh. is like two o'clock tomorrow what happens then and it turned out their Android app launched that's what happened then which I've been downloaded because I'm easily led mm. and easily impressed and used yes <laughs> hence why we do podcasts um yeah okay well, I like to end podcasts at a bit of a huh moment. That's what we get for, like, not having any kind of time limits on the stuff we do, but... Um, so please subscribe to our Patreon. Oh, yes, please Please, do. dear God, I don't have a job now. I work in a bar and I'm voluntarily poor so I could do more of stuff like this. And, like, I'm not... This isn't... The, I am once again asking you for financials. So you don't have to. Just, like, you know, it would be good. Also, it now be- that... It would be really cool if you like if you like this podcast. If you could subscribe to our Patreon, uh, if you do, even if you don't want to give us more than like a dollar a month, like, that would still be like really helpful for yeah. both of us for the reasons. Uh, don't feel like you have to. Like if you can't afford to, then don't because this is still something we're doing for free because mm. we love it. But well, if also, you do, yeah. if you do want to chuck us a buck, um, uh, and you can, yeah. then please feel free to. I'm also I think I'm capable of creating a lot more content now. Um, so. Like, I will be in a position to head up the bonus content and stuff much more consistently. I'm going to just take point on that. Also, we do still have t-shirts. Did you all forget we have t-shirts? You can buy t-shirts from yeah. us if you like. Sometimes, like, if you order one and we don't have one, we need to order a reprint. But, you know, like, we'll tell you if that happens. But, you know, usually we're pretty prompt. Um, a, lot of, a lot of unsold girls' t-shirts. I'm not reading anything into our demographic. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Patreon, I'll link to the Patreon, we will link to the Patreon. Um, I'm in a band, we're gonna be releasing some material in the new year, um, this is the new year, soon. We've got an EP together, we're called Sister Faith, Sister Chance, shout out to that. Anything else, listen, go watch, um, Donnie Darko. I don't have anything in particular. Go watch say. Uh, Color Out of Space, although we're probably going to do an episode about Color Out of Space in our oh, yeah, remarkable we... experience of meeting Richard Stanley last night. We met Richard Stanley last night. Oh he, was visibly, he was visibly Visibly alarmed. wanting to go outside. He was visibly alarmed at the attention uh, that he was getting from us nerds. We got a very like... blessed picture. He's a nerd. He's a proper nerd. Seemed like quite a nice man. Uh, hopefully he'll be making like the Dharmic Horror and uh, another movie after that which he refused to say what that what story he'd be adapting he did drop a story set that may or may not have been it in that conversation but I'm not going to say because I'm probably wrong because I don't think he'd I don't that, think it's going to be that one no uh, I think that would be a weird one to end on yeah I think I think there's probably a very definite and obvious one that they're going to end on but yeah. who knows who knows uh, so yeah. We've got some exciting stuff over the next couple of months. We have, like, we've basically got, like, the next three... Ep- we've got three of the next four episodes planned out, but there's going to be a little lacuna in the middle where we don't know what we're doing yet for that one. Yeah, we're going to try doing uh, a one that's very different from stuff we've done before as our next episode. Yeah. We're not sure what one we're doing after <laughs> that, but then we're doing... We're on we- some very, very 
new and old territory for the one after that. Yeah, so... If this follows the plan, which it never does because we change plans literally every other week, so this is all irrelevant by the time you get around to it. Yeah, this wasn't going to be the opening episode of this uh, year. Like, but, Lucy just, like, bullies me into accepting... It's January, I'm miserable. Was Let's your do words. Donnie Darko. Yeah, so... Uh, in conclusion, stay weird. And keep it signal. Good night. Good night. The discourse is real as ever, and uh, history is real. But also not. I promise to bring Salador.